rise and shine, all you K-Bear ptarmigan heads. Chris here with the breakfast waffles. Message of the day, every coin has at least two sides behind every great pro. Look for the con, yin and yang, another man's meat, blah, blah, blah. You know the drill. That was Chris in the morning on K-Bear talking about duality, the two sides, the yin and yang. And I think you could apply that to a lot that happens in uh, in the episode that we're going to be talking about today, Charles. Uh, but... Just just after this is uh, an introduction of a new character in Northern Exposure, a, a a dummy named Esau. Do you have any? What is your what's your attitude towards towards uh, ventriloquist dummies? Um, who was a comedian that does the dummies? Jeff Jeff Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Dunham Jeff. or something? I think yes, mm-hmm. Jeff Dunham. I'm pretty sure it's yeah, him. Yeah, sounds right. I think yeah, that was a thing that was uh, taking over my middle school. Uh, during his heyday, because yeah. I, I believe he had a catchphrase, and it was like post nine eleven as well. <laughs> I think it was like "I'll kill you." Well, uh, do you remember that? I don't remember his catchphrase. I do remember there being a lot of like uh, post nine eleven jokes. Like there was a uh, jalapeno pepper, I think, that looked like Osama bin Laden or something like that. Do you remember that? There In Jeff Dunham's act? Yeah, there was like a dummy that I think was like. I, I mean, I'm gonna check now because this sounds this sounds crazy. This doesn't sound real. No, no, no. The jalapeno was more of like a Mexican stereotype, but there was like a, um, let me look up all the puppets. Cause there was one that was like a skeleton maybe wrapped in. Yes. Um, that was yes, like yes, the more yes. like sort of like a turban or something. Uh, oh, maybe not. This guy doesn't have a turban on. He's just a skeleton. Maybe he put a turban on him for like the nine 11 jokes. I don't know. Well, what what's going on? What's going on with Jeff Dunham? Why, why are we talking about oh, this? Oh, no, no, no. That was, that's like pretty much my only exposure to ventriloquism right there. I'm trying to think of other ones other than like what I've seen on the street. I can't recall a famous one. Can you? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on. I'm sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. There is one, a fictional one. It's the one from Goosebumps. Right. Night of the Living Dummy. Slappy? Was Slappy, I think. I think that sounds right. Yeah, but that's like, that one I, are you I afraid to. of dummies? Is that like a, are you afraid of like child's play, Chucky? I, okay, that's not a very, that's not a very good question because I'm afraid of yeah. everything. <laughs> so it's like, are you afraid of this? I was like, yes, I don't, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I am afraid of that one. But when I was a child, I would read all of the, uh, the slappy ones from the Goosebumps. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think you, I think I remember you saying that, that you like, you had read those or those were the only ones you had read. Maybe those were like the ones you stuck to. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much Slappy was the one that caught my attention. Uh, what, what about you? What do you think about ventriloquism? I've got a lot to say about ventriloquist dummies. I think I think they're super annoying. I really don't like it in uh, any media when, when there's like a ventriloquist dummy. I guess I've seen, it kind of lends itself to the genre of horror for whatever reason. We talked about Goosebumps. Um, but yeah, I was very concerned preparing to watch for this episode because I read the premise and I didn't remember that Chris gets a dummy, but that's like in the log line of one of the premises that I, I read for this episode. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to like this episode, <laughs> but, but, uh, no, 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 no. I, I think, uh, I was actually really surprised that it never went in the directions that I thought it might. I mean, there's ob- some obvious ideas of what's going on here, but, um, but I will, I will, we'll save it for the episode. Let's talk about uh, what we're talking about today, Charles. What, what is this? Yeah, so what we're talking about here is a Northern Overexposure podcast where we talk about CBS television series Northern Exposure. We're on season six, episode five, The Robe. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee. 
big fan of Northern Exposure. Uh, however, I've only seen the sixth season once before. So I remember a lot of what's going on, but also a lot of things are surprising me as I, I don't remember this. I don't remember the dummy too, too well. I, I, I got to say, like, I was not expecting that. But uh, Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. So you have a fresh take, albeit we're on the final season now. So you've got a really good grasp on what Northern Exposure is. And I think maybe are already starting, you're, you're already starting to feel uh, a shift perhaps, or, you know, how some of the later seasons are detaching from, you know, the earlier seasons. I mean, it's a, it's a TV show that's going on year after year. It's got to change, but it's uh, m- maybe a, Maybe a harsh growing period right now, if you could even call it that, uh, the changes. Yeah, wait, hang on. Yeah. So you had said right at the beginning that there was going to be something that was new that was coming on board. Are you saying that this dummy, Esau, Esau, Esau. what is his name? Esau. Esau. Esau is a recurring character? No, no, no. I don't think he is. Um, Oh, yeah. Maybe I I misled with that that sort of introduction there. Um, But we do see him at the end of the episode. Chris is like, we had to part ways, but it's just, uh, it's like we parted ways until someone else can find Esau. And he's just like sitting on a, uh, Esau, the puppet is just sitting on a bus stop bench. Just like he abandoned mm. him there. <laughs> or I don't know. Is he going to yeah. hop on the bus or something? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> That's scary. Well, uh, let's talk about who directed it. Who wrote this episode? Yeah. So as you mentioned, the title is The Robe. It's the fifth episode in season six. And uh, I actually just have a quick complaint. I mean, it's only two strikes, really. But this episode and the last episode, which was titled The Letter, pretty boring titles, I think. Come on. Like, you know, usually the titles are, even if they don't directly reference what's going on in the episode, they're like pulled from some famous quote or song. The Mm -hmm. Robe? I don't know. Do you even think, like, is that yeah. a good name for this episode? It's like one of the plot lines. I mean, surely the dummy is the one that takes over center stage, <laughs> right. right? Like that or Satan. So like. Yeah, the dummy's like uh, more like, hang on. colorful. There's, there's something here. There's okay. something here. So like, right. let's think about it. Uh, the devil's, what is it? Like the devil's, uh, I'm trying to get to it. <laughs> the empty mind. It's yeah. Like the devil's playground. Right, something like that. Idle mind is the yeah. devil's workshop, maybe. He he quotes yes. it in this episode. So why don't you do like an idle dummy is the devil's workshop? Oh, I'm seeing, yeah, you're pitching a title. I like it better. I already like Yeah, <laughs> like, see? We there can we figure something out in there that ties dummy and devil. Anyway, um, you know, I'm just kind of harshing right now. There's a lot of really great titles in this season, uh, but there's also a couple more that are pretty bland, like The Quest and... Um, is that it? Horns? I mean, once we watch those, it'll probably make more sense. But those are the more boring titles that I've found. Um, that's just a dumb complaint from me. The director of this episode is Lorraine Sina Ferrara. She's uh, credited as Lorraine Sina Ferrara for this episode, though I think like IMDb, Wikipedia, I think she mostly goes by Lorraine Sina. And she directed the episode in season five, A Wing and a Prayer. And I think we had mentioned this before when we covered that episode. She's the only woman to ever direct on the TV show The Sopranos. Um, but yeah, pretty cool, fun fact there. Uh, the writer is Sam Egan. Pretty sure this is his first episode writing for Northern Exposure. Though he's going to continue to write more in season six. And I looked this up because I noticed a lot of the writers in season six, a lot of the same names. And it turns out there are only seven different writers in all of season six, like uh, whether they're joining together, writing solo. 
it's all written, the 23 episodes uh, feature only seven writers, which is not unusual. I think season four and season five also had a low stock of writers, but um, I, I feel like season six takes the cake for the, I guess, what do you call that? Lowest common denominator or, you know what I mean? Just like fewest writers overall. Finally, the air date, October 17th, 1994. Mm, okay. Generally, we've been doing impressions right at the top, right? Yeah. What, what do you think about this? I'm not loving it. I'm <laughs> not loving it, man. I, I will say I, I watched it twice in preparation for this episode. Like I took all my notes the first time. And then today, just to get ready for the podcast, I put it on the background. It was not grabbing me as much as the first time I had watched it uh, for the podcast. But um, I think I texted this to you, Charles. I, we, I rarely share my feelings before we sit down to record. And I was like, I don't know if it's good or bad, but there was a lot of things that there's a lot of ideas that I still felt I needed to unpack, which is another reason why I rewatched it. Cause there's, I don't know, there is a lot of ideas in here. Um, but yeah, was it good? Was it bad? You, you know, know, I think, yeah. Oh, um, sorry. I was going to say like, I think I cracked the writer's mind. Okay. I got exactly what he was getting for. Like I, I know what his inspiration was. What's like that? I, I, I nailed him. So, <laughs> so there's a line from Chris at K Barrett where he says, it's a little bit like M. Scott Peck, Jiminy Cricket, rag out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And who M. Scott Peck is, is this founding father of the self-help genre of books. And he wrote something called The Road Less Traveled in 1978. And then in 1993, he wrote Further Along the Road Less Traveled. And in this, uh, in this self-help book right here, he tries to combine like the spirituality of people into the contemporary self-help of like merging two different things together, psychological mm. and spiritual together. But the thing that, but the thing that clues me in on the motif that's running through here is the word road. You pay attention throughout the entire episode. There is numerous references to roads. Wow. We got the road to responsibility, not going to get turned into a road slick the next time I'm tooling down the Alcane by an oncoming Kenworth. Mm -hmm. We got get somebody like you to stray over that bumper white line just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we have, we'll have an act worth taking you on the road. And we end with a shot of a road. All right. So roads, uh, spirituality and roads, is that what you're saying is kind of a through line here? Yeah, kind of like the path that you take, because there seems to be a binary type of statement being done here between placebo and not placebo, mm -hmm. uh, either take or don't take. So I think that this writer, I, I think like, honestly, my this is just, I think this right, happened. Right, right. I could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should get this writer on the, uh, on the podcast episode. I think that M. Scott Pegg released the, the second book and he saw it. And he wanted to just tie in a bunch of those themes into there. I find it way too coincidental that you would include this many references to Rhodes and then also use the name of M. Scott Peck mm -hmm. tied into the episode. You know, they also reference um, in, in the Women's Book Club, uh, Jean Shinoda Bolin's Goddesses in Every Woman. I was trying to figure out a little bit more about this author and this book. But I think it's a, another idea of like tying in your spirituality to your health and to your um, psychology in a way. Um, the way you go about thinking about daily life as a woman. I think she also followed that book up with one about um, gods in every man. So we have goddesses in every woman and gods in every man. 
so that's interesting. That kind of ties into what you were saying about um, mm. this, this author's, I guess, message in the book, perhaps, ideas. Yeah. I think what I'm getting at here is that Northern Exposure has always been very good at wrapping its plot lines into one singular theme. Mm-hmm. That's just good writing in general. You always want to have that. But the problem here is that the story and the characters aren't matching up with the original Northern Exposure spirit. Yeah. So they got like the thematical things. Like I see what they're laying down as the foundation. I get the subtext. And I think it's actually done relatively okay. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. My problem is with how the characters are being treated. I think I see what you're saying because I felt like oftentimes in some situations, not all throughout the episode, but in uh, some scenes that I didn't like, it would be the characters just sort of um, serving more of a story message. And it's like, okay, it's actually a pretty cool message, but it's like, I don't think Chris would act like that. Or like, I don't, you know, specifically Chris, but like some other characters too. It's like, they kind of just feel like they're there to serve the idea of the plot. Whereas, um, I don't know, didn't feel like the characters would, it felt um, forced or contrived. Right. And like, you know, immediately we can use Chris as a very easy example. So like the dummy is like all dummies in most media, in my opinion, (laughs) are used to express someone's like innermost self or some sort of duality that is within them, just like the two sides of the coin. So for Chris, it's saying like, okay, well, I can be very lofty and present ambiguous answers or I can cut straight to the chase, shoot from the hip. Mm -hmm. And that's what like this little dummy represents. And in order for them to forge that message, they needed to have the townsfolk, uh, Ruth Ann, Walt, for example, kick in and be that uh, opposing force. But in doing so, it just it doesn't look like it's in character because I just don't mm-hmm. believe that the townsfolk would turn on Chris like that after <laughs> six seasons plus whatever years they had beforehand. Like surely they've mm-hmm. been used to Chris's style of pontificating over the airwaves. Right, and now right. suddenly you're you're questioning it? Now, I, of course, you know, just really quickly, you could make the argument and say, well, now they're being presented with a new option and they never yeah. knew mm-hmm. about this new option. So that's what's giving them that thing. That's kind of true, but I also feel like it was really cruel the way that they did it. I mean, I mean, did you... Am I reading too much into that? Or did you also feel like this coldness from the characters? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say like... It's not the cruelest thing I've seen so far in Northern Exposure, and I don't like when that sort of overrides what we would expect, you know, from the characters. But it def- I agree with you. It feels like after watching it, especially the second time too, it's like, okay, this is actually a pretty cool episode of television. However, like, why are these characters here? They're not – it's like they're performing a story that – um they kind of feel forced into, you know, it doesn't feel like this is how I'm specifically thinking about one scene where Chris reacts to, um, Ruthann, uh, taking the, the puppet and sewing up one of his like garments. Cause it was maybe tearing and Chris gets really mad that she did that. I, I, I think we should start to jump into the plot pretty soon. I won't focus on specifics anymore, but that was my main example of it. Just feeling like Chris, uh, overreacting and, like it makes sense because in that scene it shows that as much as Chris is nervous about how Esau is projecting, the puppet is projecting, it's like, oh, I kind of love this. I need this puppet. I cherish it at, a, at the same time, this weird uh, bond that they have. Yeah, I don't know. It felt like it made sense to the to the story and we needed that beat there on the script, but uh, I don't think that's how Chris would um, express that. Uh, yeah. Do you want to just hop into the dummy plot line immediately? 
Let's do it. Yeah. So um, we we kind of started with the soundbite with Chris. Uh, and after that soundbite, he pulls up a ventriloquist dummy and introduces uh, its name is Esau. Uh, now, do you know about Esau? Do you know where that name comes from? Absolutely no idea. <laughs> so I remember this story. And I, I, but I, I wanted to look into it a little bit more because I was trying to figure out what could it mean. Um, Esau is from the Bible. He's Isaac's son, and his brother was Jacob. In fact, they were twins. And um, there's in the story that I know of Esau is that their father Isaac was very old and very blind, and he actually favored Esau. I think Esau was the. Well, I guess I wouldn't say older. I mean, I guess older. You're twins, but like Esau was the favored one, perhaps. Um, and Esau was like a hunter, always out in the wilderness. He comes back, uh, late after a hunt, tired, exhausted, and extremely hungry. And his brother Jacob is whipping up like a a pot of lentils or something like that. And Jacob tells his brother Esau, if you give me your birthright, like the blessing from the father, the birthright, I'll give you this bowl of lentils. And Esau doesn't even think twice. He's like, birthright, what is that worth? You know, it's whatever. We're both brothers. We both like our family. You can have it. So Esau ends up trading his birthright to Jacob just for a bowl of lentils. Uh, And also part of the story is like Jacob disguises himself as Esau and goes to his father who is going blind and gets his father's blessing as well. So I think the moral that that from what I understand that you're supposed to take from the story is that Esau... Uh, the, the, the problem with Esau is that he favored only like material things, like hunting, material pleasures, like a bowl of stew. The spiritual value to him was uh, not important. So he didn't care for the blessing or the birthright. And um, if you ask me, it's a pretty messed up story. Like Jacob <laughs> stole, <laughs> tricked his own brother. Um, but I think it turns out they have some sort of... Um, uh, they they meet again years later and I think uh, forgive each other. But um, w- basically what I drew from that, the naming of Esau, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that story might've uh, given you some ideas, Charles, but what I see is uh, this idea that Esau is only concerned with material things and less spiritual things. We can easily see in this first scene, Esau uh, calls Chris out for you know, uh, Esau sees things more in black and white and simple absolutes. And Chris is maybe um, too open-minded about things. He's like, uh, he's more transcendental, whereas Esau is kind of down to earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think that the most striking thing is that they're twins. Because Esau has a line, Esau the dummy has a line that says, (laughs) hey, we're both whittled from the same fella. Yeah. I think he's trying to get at something right there. I I agree. I think that Chris is trying to say that there are no moral absolutes in Esau saying that there is. There are categorical imperatives that mm-hmm. say that something is wrong and something is right. And I, I you know that I mean that's like a whole entire rabbit hole right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm inclined to believe that Chris <laughs> is a little bit more in the clear. I mean, yeah. obviously, like if you have all the time in the world and you are open-minded. Enough, you should approach every situation with nuance. And then, you know, from there you can decide to be like, ah, no, that's like incredibly messed up. Like there's just no <laughs> redeeming value out of that. And then the other times you can be like, oh, no, I, I see where it's coming from right here. Uh, but then that goes into a whole entire thing about what, what your values are and what society's values are and you know, ethical concerns. We, we can talk about it as we go into the plot line yeah. mm-hmm. more. But 
I don't think that waving away complexity right. is kind of the right way to look at it. But in the, at other times, like I can totally see where Esau's coming from. I think by the end, Chris sort of wins out. You know, he pushes Esau well, to the curb and embraces um, uh, uncertainty. I mean, you said complexity, yeah, but, like, but he says uncertainty. It's not like that was earned in any way, though, was it? Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, it's just, um, I think it's more of, I see that this plot line is just showing two sides of one coin, as they say in this opening soundbite. Um, it's not necessarily, a, um, I see what you're saying. It's not really a um, story arc in the sense of like a dramatic arc. It's more of just showing two arguments and Chris chooses one at the end, which is, uh, yeah, as you said, how do you earn that? He just, you know, there's no earning. He just decides and pushes pushes Esau Yeah, out. it's because he feels bad being ignored. Like, that's really what it came down to. It's like, I don't <laughs> like when I speak and the townsfolk don't listen to me. So I'm just going to yeah, get rid yeah. of Esau. And I'm like, wait a second. I think there's there's something in between that you're supposed to get to before you get to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say, because I mentioned before, I think ventriloquist dummies are very annoying. I hate them in, in, in any, like, uh, you know, episodic TV show. But I did I actually liked uh, Esau here because um, it didn't fall into the trappings of, like, the dark side of Chris, like, coming out and trying to take over control of Chris. And, in fact, in the end, Chris wins, or I guess he wins in his own way. He just gets rid of Esau. But um, I was thinking about it. Uh, what's cool about Esau is that even though Chris and Esau can't seem to agree, I don't think Esau ever gives bad advice. Like he gives short, succinct advice, and you could um, be on Chris's side and argue that, you know, we should think about this a little more and think about all the sides to it. It's not just black and white. But I think Esau gives good advice in the end. And uh, I was thinking, like, if you think about this as like D and D alignments, Esau is lawful good because he, as you said, he believes in absolutes of uh, what is good and what is bad. And Chris is more chaotic. He doesn't want to, even when Esau gives great advice, he's like, well, no, we we should step back and think about that. Just because, like, you know, one person said this is the way we got to do it. You know, we should be more open minded to our process and not just follow a strict set of rules, ethics, I guess. All right, so I think there's a way that we can tie this into the other plot line of Satan, mm-hmm. ultimate battle of good versus yeah. evil. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to skip forward a little bit, but this is really the only way that I can do it, mm-hmm. is that Satan's plot line ends by him telling Shelley something about God is in the details and also the devil is in the details. Those are two phrases that are used opposite from each other all the time. Now, the original phrase, God is in the details, came from a German architect named Gustav Labert, and he often used the phrase to provide acknowledgement of a job well done, to remind himself that his success was attributed to a higher power, because ultimately what that phrase means is that I was very diligent. I wasn't sloppy. I measured twice. Uh, I just made sure that everything was being done and correctly explored in all of the beautiful facets that we can have in human life. And on the other end, there's the phrase, the devil is in the details, which means that like, that's how it snags you right there because you were too quick to judge and everything. And I think that like Chris is sort of both and that Chris is getting into the weeds. He's getting into the details. And because he gets into that, there's no simple solution mm-hmm. to his answers. Whereas Esau is saying like, no, 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 you don't need the details. Just <laughs> shoot from the hip. Which is not necessarily wrong, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's what you need. I think if this episode was better written, you could have incorporated both of those ideas. I think they were there for the pickings. 
like if, like what I'm doing right now. Like I can understand what's happening here, but it's not being connected. And it's not like I need to be fed like a baby on all of these themes and ideas. I just think that they need to be connected in some way. And I think that's where it's failing at because this plot line, like we talked about very quickly, the way it resolves itself is that Chris simply just puts it out into the road on a bench. Mm-hmm. And I think if had they gone into that, like the details thing and how it, can, it cuts both ways, it's good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that could have resolved itself really well. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Like it, it's a, a very simple solution at the end where Chris just says, no, I'm going to keep it my way instead of really seeing that both ways have values and like it's it's not one way or the other. Um, though I think, you know, I can't remember exactly the closing monologue, but I would expect that Chris kind of places some sort of value in Esau, even though they have to split ways. You know, he's like, okay, that was like an important thing to to witness, but I'm just going to be good old Chris. But let's just continue down this plot line. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say as we go through the scenes. I think the next time we see Chris and Esau, uh, Chris has, they've actually started to have a crowd, like an audience gathering outside of the glass windows of K-Bear because uh, he says, you know, obviously it's not great radio, but this is just the talent, supposedly a talent that Chris has had is ventriloquism. And uh, I got I to gotta admit, Chris, uh, as the actor, John Corbett, you can kind of see him, you know, I guess faking ventriloquism, but it's important, you know, to kind of make it appear as if he's doing the, um, throwing his voice while Esau is moving in the, uh, the puppet. So in this scene, they take calls from the radio. I think um, we kind of touched on this already, but I think it's summed up pretty well in a line from Esau, I think. He says something like, you know, Esau is, you know, he, he speaks from the heart while Chris has to take the treacherous detour through the superego. And you were talking about how like the symbol of dummies or this use, this trope of ventriloquist dummies is usually used to show like the inner workings of the 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 operator of the dummy you know is is uh, brought out through the dummy uh, and sometimes to me I think it's always like the stuff that you would never say because you uh you 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 know you think before you say something you know you kind of analyze it and decide like okay I probably shouldn't say that but then the dummy speaks uh, shooting from the hip you know but turns out as I said. I think the dummy gives pretty good advice. We get a caller, Connie Grippo. Uh, that name sounds familiar. Did that sound familiar to you? Uh, no, not really. Not even the voice actress. No, yeah. I don't know if we've ever heard her voice. I just feel like that's a name that they they reference of someone in town. I'm pretty sure we've heard her name before, at least. But I did do a quick search on Google, Connie Grippo, Northern Exposure. And uh, I think she's mentioned, at least, in a couple more episodes this season. But listener, if you recognize that name from a previous episode, please write in at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know if she calls in before or if they just mention her. It sounded familiar. Um, but she has a, a quandary. She's got some new tenants. And um, she knows that she's not mandated to provide a carbon monoxide detector. Like I don't think the state of Alaska, at least at that time, said that she has to do it. But morally, she knows, you know, she probably, she thinks she should provide one. That would be the uh, right thing to do. Um, but it's like a hundred dollars, something like that, which is, I think it's kind of pricey for a carbon monoxide detector. Maybe she has to buy multiple. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously Chris 
muses about this idea. He presents more questions than answers. He doesn't really give an answer outright, but Esau immediately just says, go buy him the detector, Connie. All right, next caller, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so like the dummy's trying to say that there is the absolute right of saying like, look, if you have to give out a monologue for why you're trying to defend your decision, <laughs> you're probably on the wrong side, which is in some way right. Like I understand yeah, that, mm-hmm. but maybe the subtleties of the case brings itself to form the full colors of what we're looking at. This is also the scene where they talk about the M. Scott Peck. Oh, okay. And I wanted to really quickly quote from his obituary that was written in the New York Times. And it says that Dr. Peck is among the founding fathers of the self-help genre of books, which retained their popularity from year to year. The Road Less Traveled, one that was published in 1973, really marked the beginning of contemporary self-help said Jan Miller, a literary agent whose firm, Dupree Miller & Associates, represents other stars in the field, including Dr. Phil McGraw and Joel Osteen. It was a significant work because he was able to blend the psychology and the spiritual so magnificently. The book focused on Dr. Peck's core belief that, as stated in its opening sentence, life is difficult and that its problems can be addressed only through self-discipline. Humans, however, tend to try to avoid problems, a habit that only creates more difficulties, Dr. Peck said. To that dose of self-discipline, Dr. Peck added an inseparable spiritual element. I make no distinction between the mind and the spirit, and therefore no distinction between the process of achieving spiritual growth and achieving mental growth, Dr. Peck wrote in the preface to the original book. They are one in the same. So, what Dr. Peck really represents is this idea of, uh, I don't know like the exact word for it. It's that idea that like, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm. Like problems mm-hmm. can be solved if you just settle down and look at your problems in the face. I don't know how you feel about self-help books and I'm not here to criticize anybody, which is why I'm like, I'm, I'm skirting on the outsides right now and my language and in my tone. Like, I think that self-help books are good if that's where you summon your strength from. I think that mm-hmm. if you need this book to keep the rain out of your eyes and in order to live with some semblance of integrity in the adult world, then great. I think you should use it. But I don't think that like self-help books are like... Like a magic cure? Yeah. I don't think they're like the end-all be-all of things okay. right yeah. here. And so how I'm trying to wrap this all up is that the Esau has this recommendation of saying like, just do the simplest thing, the thing that you perceive to be the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a useful stepping stone in order to live your life to the fullest. Yeah. But again, I think that many times in life there are complexities in which you need to look at it like Chris and say that, no, it's not quite as simple as saying do the right thing. Yeah. Even in this scene, Connie Grippo says, you know, piggybacking off of what you're saying, Esau, you know, she she says like, uh, you say about we should do what's always absolutely good or what's, you know, stay away from what's bad. But she says, what if you aren't sure what the right thing is? So there is, she, you know, she brings up that idea that there is complexity. I mean, for for Esau, it's easy for him at least to decide that you should buy the carbon monoxide detector. For her, she's not sure. That's why she seeks advice from Chris. But yeah, for, for whatever reason, like you're saying, Charles, the town... <laughs> No longer wants to hear Chris's advice and we'll just, we'll just, uh, you know, subdue to whatever Esau says, you know, they just want to do what Esau says. 
the next scene, I think Chris is walking around outside K-Bear and he bumps into Walt. Walt invites Chris to dinner on Friday. I wrote this in my notes because he's going to thaw out the last of those mammoth steaks. That was back in season five, uh, the, the final episode of season five. Uh, so, so that sounds great, but Walt makes sure that he says to Chris before they part, he says, make sure you bring Esau. And, uh, Chris, obviously, I don't think he says anything to that, but we can see that there's, you know, he, he feels like he's, he's being, uh, there's a favoritism being applied to Esau above himself. Right. I think that the next scene involving Chris is between Chris and Shelly, right? Yeah, that's right. Chris is like fixing his motorcycle outside and uh, Shelly walks up to him to ask for advice. Is this a, I guess it kind of, it ties into the to the robe plot line, but obviously, uh, I don't know how much you want to get into it here, but Esau is not here in this scene. That's important to note, at least. It's mm-hmm. just Chris. Yeah, it's just Chris. And Chris is trying to guide Shelly on this dilemma that she's having she's saying hey i got this deal from satan and he wants me to light up hollings robes that he values do you think i'll go to hell for this (laughs) and i think that chris gives off a very reasonable point he's saying it's not just the robes it's not like the fabric that's worth the value that that's not it what really matters is the care and trust that Mm -hmm. holling endows into you and you are figuratively and literally burning that away. That is the one that you need to think about. And yet Shelly says like, no, just, just tell me what to do. Like that. (laughs) I don't like this. And I'm like, that's it though. Like, do you really want your answer to be served up on a silver platter? Yeah. I think it's, it's fine if you lead them to the road. I don't think it's necessarily fine if you put a leash on them and walk them down the road. No, you're right. I think I think you're right. Chris gives her the answer. Um, he's just kind of showing her, explaining why it would be... I mean, like, I guess he doesn't say to her, don't burn the robe, but he wants her to understand what it would mean to burn the robe. And then, I mean, obviously, I don't think Chris would be in support of uh, Shelly burning the robe and breaking trust. But, you know, he wants her to understand what it means. And um, I guess he could have just been like, you know, t- t- TLDR, don't burn the rope. But, <laughs> but no, he, he does, he does sort of um, kind of expound on it, just to the ideas there. I, I wrote down some of the quotes here. As you were saying, when he's explaining to her, he says, maybe it's not about the robe at all. Maybe what it's really about is connubial infrastructure, trust and honesty, the age-old quest of Diogenes in a post-Milken universe. Canubial, I had to look that word up. Canubial infrastructure, I think it is uh, of per- pertaining to marriage. And then Diogenes, you know, the age-old quest of Diogenes in a post-Milken universe. Does that mean anything to you? No. What does that mean? So uh, hopefully this clears some things up, but I did a quick Wikipedia on Diogenes and then also what post-Milken could mean. Diogenes is not like the founder or inventor of the cynic uh, philosophy, like school of thought, but he was a um, he was like a cynic's cynic. He was uh, the sort of poster child for the idea of cynicism. And now, I think today, actually, there is a Wikipedia article called "Modern Cynicism," but this is like going back to like ancient Greek philosophy. The idea of uh, cynicism in that context is uh, quoting from Wikipedia: "The purpose of life is to live in virtue." 
in agreement with nature. As reasoning creatures, people can gain happiness by rigorous training and by living in a way which is natural to themselves, rejecting all conventional desires for wealth, power, and fame, and even flouting conventions openly and derisively in public. Instead, they were to lead a simple life free from all possessions. So that in itself, I think, is contrary to the idea of Esau from the Bible, who's more about like the worldly possessions um, whereas a cynic in ancient Greek would try to transcend above um, physical possessions and try to um, be uh, more more in tune with nature and agreement with nature. And um, I wrote in my notes, could you describe Jacob from the Bible as a cynic? Maybe so. Um, Milken may refer to Lowell Milken, who was like a philanthropist, or his brother Michael Milken, which I'm pretty sure that they've referenced in Northern Exposure before, because this uh, Wikipedia article seemed familiar. Michael Milken helped develop the market for high-yield bonds or junk bonds. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, he, he, yeah. was also, he was also subsequently indicted on 98 counts of racketeering and fraud, and then later pardoned by President Trump in February 2020. So, Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so... I, the the phrase the age old quest of Diogenes in a post Milken universe, I'm guessing just kind of making a foil to Diogenes being Michael Milken or Lowell Milken or I'm not entirely sure. The idea of yeah I don't know there's there's a um, maybe a dichotomy or a juxtaposition between the two. I don't know. Does that make sense to you at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get where you're coming from okay. on here, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's got the classic elements of criticisms. I don't know how to say that into a word. <laughs> yeah, Chris criticism antics. Yeah, <laughs> it's got that classic stuff right there, and it's so into his character. Like, I don't know why Shelley is expressing disappointments. Like, I guess it's reaching a boiling point. You know. Like we all do from time to time to being like, why can't you just occasionally be like X? Mm-hmm. But it's obviously weighing on Chris. It's, this is like a core part of him. This is really how he acts. Saying that to him is, you know, mean. Yeah, I think um I think it is a funny idea to do the to do the dummy here because so often in these episodes, characters are gonna come to Chris for guidance and he always gives them a lot of great insight. Um, to help them understand their problem, but he never ever, well, at least lately, and this seems to be kind of a, a trope that's developing, is uh, he never gives an answer to anyone, it seems. He just kind of gives them more to think about. Uh, and that, as I said, is like becoming a trope in itself. And maybe they felt that like, you know, we can't like just, can't keep doing this without uh, acknowledging that this is happening because then it'll just become like, uh, do you know, uh, what's the, have you heard of the term like a flanderism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been like it's that based from that character in um, Simpsons, Ned Flanders, I think, who uh, you know just kind of became overly predictable. Perhaps he just kind of became more and more into this, uh, cornered into this character, and that's kind of a trope now, a Flanderism. So I think it's cool that they brought up this uh, this alternative of, and it's represented through this dummy of like, you know, what if Chris, what if there is some inner part of Chris that operated differently than how he's like sort of more uh, looking at it from above and trying to be open Mm -hmm. to the complexity and the uncertainty. But what if we had this, this inner, this inner opposite 
the thing, I, I don't want to stick on it too much, but I've said already, I just really hate dummies in the media. <laughs> so I was like, one thing that I think could have been cooler, they could have done the same thing without the dummy. It would have been a thing with, uh, this would tie more into Joel's plot line. But Joel is like giving, we kind of mentioned before, placebos and pills. And the town, which we haven't talked about yet, the town seems to think that they have a lot of different side effects coming from the placebo or the pill. And maybe this is a, a side effect that Chris thinks he's having is that he has this sort of um, alternate ego, perhaps, mm -hmm. alter ego or a devil's advocate that he can't control because of whatever side effect these pills are doing to him. And so he will always have this internal argument represented by this, this side effect. So he speaks as if he's Esau, you know, with, without the dummy. That's my, that's oh, my edit that I want to do. That's a really good, yeah, I like that. I like you wrap that in with the placebos <laughs> and the dummy. I yeah, I just don't like the dummy. So I was like, <laughs> why did they do this? But uh, is, I was going to say, is there a theme on dummies that we haven't really seen explored in media? So off the top of my head, when you see a dummy, Oftentimes they're used to express someone's innermost things, their thoughts, and they need like a vehicle to express them. So they use the dummy. Mm -hmm. Another one that we're saying is like a duality, like we're seeing in this episode. It's kind of like when you think about throwing your voice, it's not coming straight from your heart. It has mm -hmm. to go, you have to send it from another direction or you might have to channel it through the dummy. I don't think yeah. that's what's happening here though. You know who did it? Okay, so this, okay. This is, yeah, go ahead. All right, <laughs> I'm going to say who did it bad and then who did it well. He did cool. it bad. Do you remember that Mel Gibson movie called The Beaver? I haven't seen it, but I thought it, I thought it got good reviews. But, but did it? I thought <laughs> I, it, I saw the trailer. And I was like, "You gotta be kidding me, man!" The premise, really quickly, premise of that movie: Mel Gibson uh, doesn't get along yeah. with his family. Obviously, there's like a fracture between him and his loved ones, and he finds like this um, beaver like puppet, puppet beaver. Yeah, <laughs> that's how he communicates with his family. That was directed by. Um, can't remember the actress's name, but she played Clarice in Silence of the Lambs. Jodie Foster. Oh, Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. Oh, my Lord. It was just weird because it was Mel Gibson. <laughs> I thought that was like, what is going on? I saw that, saw that trailer in the theaters. I was like, what yeah. is going on? Who did it well? Okay. Uh, Franny and Zoe, because they uh -huh. use a telephone in yes, order to yeah. express their innermost thoughts. I was like, oh, that's like really great. That's like the channel that they go through. Yeah. yeah it's, not, it's not face to face, I guess. Right, and I think that's more eloquent than a dummy because I think the dummy is so uh, not subtle or yeah, played yeah. out like a cliche, a trope, something like that. And I'm just trying to think of like a, a way that the dummy is incorporated that we haven't seen before in media. The argument for the dummy in this situation is that cinema is a visual medium and how do we visualize and externalize this idea of Chris having an alter ego? Having said that, I mean, like, I think Northern Exposure does a lot with internal feelings and internal psychological expressions, you know? And, uh, yeah, they, they also, they, they externalize it in some ways, but also, like, they don't have to. They do a lot of really um, not obvious, like, very, uh, what's the word, understated performances or, like, a character just doesn't, uh, you know, completely spell it out for you. They say maybe a line or two, and it means so much. So like, I don't, you don't have to be afraid of uh, being a little indirect or like, you know, being a little um, not visual, but internal though. That would be the argument is that you want to externalize this idea through a puppet, I guess. Right, right. Like you, I, I get it. You want it to be your vehicle. 
Uh, just, just like you said, uh, you're just not a fan of it of any capacity right there. Well, we see this dummy come into play, but on the other end with Ed. So mm-hmm. previously we had Shelly come into Chris. He didn't have Esau with him. Now he's got Esau. They're at K-Bear and Ed's spilling the beans saying he got the uh, placebo pills and the real ones mixed up. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what to do to move forward. And Chris is trying to throw him a bone into kind of massage his wounds, kind of mm-hmm. tell him like, hey, it's all right. Maybe this is like actually part of the experiment. You know, yeah. who mm-hmm. amongst us hasn't like made a mistake? And he's all saying like, no, you got to cut straight through, man. You messed <laughs> up. You're 24. You're a big boy. You got to own up to it, which yeah. in a way is right. I'm not saying Esau is wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just presents Esau's view as right. And we're going to just end it on that note. But then the episode says that Chris wants his own viewpoint. Surely Chris could learn a little bit from Esau right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's true. This is a perfect scene in which we know that Esau's right. I mean, as I said before, I, th- I don't think Esau's wrong in any case uh, that he's when he when he gives advice. But this is a perfect example of Esau being right. And Chris wanting to challenge that to make Ed feel better. Like, I don't feel so bad, buddy. It's okay. Like, let's think about this. Let's unpack it. Let's discuss this. Um, But I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think Ed even realizes that he needs to be comforted in this way. He just wants a quick answer. And yeah, this could be a perfect scene for Chris to reflect on and be like, you know, like Esau was right. And maybe, maybe Ed needed to hear, you know, he needs that cold hard advice and that's going to teach him a better lesson in the end because in the end he does obviously tell Joel and um you know that I'll talk about that's a pretty fun scene too when he comes in at the end he wants to uh, wash Joel's windows so they have a they have sort of a coming together there mm-hmm. but yeah th- that's this scene here I want to kind of just quickly move through the rest of the Esau yeah. things well here's where okay. we can I, I just want to say like this is where I think the Esau plotline should have went to. And I think it actually could have straight up ended right here. Mm. And I would have been happy with okay. it. So what happens next is that we, we end on Chris. We pick up with Chris again. And he's finding that Esau was missing from his place. Mm-hmm. He's panicked. He's going through town. And he ends up the brick looking for Esau. And it turns out that Ruthann was trying to change his sweater or something. It got right. snagged on something. And Chris rightfully says, like, well, like, don't just take him from me without my permission. Come on, like, I wouldn't just take your truck and try to say, like, I was just trying to fix something on it. He blows up on her. He walks off. But then Esau turns around and says, hey, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And it's saying what Chris cannot because he's so Mm -hmm. blinded by rage. Esau's cutting straight through that and saying, like, hey, I'll just use this as a way to say I'm sorry. Yeah. And he genuinely means it. And that's really sweet. I think that's good. Yeah. Because it's it's like Chris is apologizing through Esau with a joke. It's something that, as you said, I love that. It's like Chris couldn't do in the moment mm-hmm. because he was clouded by these emotions. And in a way, it's Chris um, seeing like, obviously in the end, the message that we get uh, at the end of the episode that we do get is Chris sticking to his own methodology. But this scene could be used as a way showing that Chris is like, okay, like maybe um, maybe it is important to see things from Esau's view every once in a while. Something right, like that. right, exactly. And then they ruin it because <laughs> we get to the next scene and it's at that dinner party. <laughs> and 
Uh, Esau's pontificating about all the fun things that there are in life. And he's just being very true to himself. And everyone's eating it up. You got Walt and Ruthann. Uh, someone I'm not too sure if we've ever been introduced to. Oh, Walt mentions when he invited Chris, he's like, oh, I've got my buddy coming. I want you to bring Esau. But he says mm-hmm. it's a buddy from his old, like, I don't remember if it's like Solomon Brothers. or so. It's like his old, like, when he was like, apparently, you know, this is part of Walt's backstory, is he was like a Wall Street trader. So it's one of his buddies from those days is this guy who's joining them. Right. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So we got that. <laughs> Then Chris puts it away and puts Esau to the side and he starts talking about more nuanced, complex issues and everyone's sipping their wine, uh, saying they got to leave, being just, I mean, (laughs) dude, he was just there like five seconds ago. He knows what's going on. He's not an idiot. Come on, man. At least throw him a bone. At least listen to like one story and then be like, all right, got him. Oh, it's getting kind of late. I'm going to head out. No, they just like straight up did it in front of his face. And then Chris... Doesn't say a word. He just goes back and gets Esau, plops him back down onto his knee, starts getting into the jokes again. Everyone's like, oh, man, yeah. I'm like, they're eating it up. that's so mean. <laughs> yeah, they start talking to Esau directly. They just look past Chris. Um, I wrote this down earlier in the episode because I think it was also that last scene that we talked about where we can see that Chris is very concerned that Esau is like, you know, what happens if Esau's gone? Like, no one's going to listen to me if I don't have Esau. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's becoming like a little addicted to this a puppet. I wrote down, please tell me Esau gets mangled and destroyed at the end of the episode. <laughs> uh, that does not happen, but that would have been pretty fun. Uh, what if, hey, I, it just occurred to me, what if that's like, what if Esau is possessed by Satan in the episode? <laughs> yeah, because Satan is in this episode. Maybe, maybe he has some, um, some, some, uh, Got a little bit of his nefarious, here. nefarious tendrils wrapped up in that dummy. Are you familiar with uh, Trailer Park Boys? I think I've talked about it a little bit. On I'm familiar this with the show, and I know that there's like one person that's obsessed with cats, but otherwise, I yeah. don't know anything else. That person, Bubbles, gets a uh, gets a puppet called Conky, and uh, again, I hate puppets, but they really lean into it. It's like the most annoying, unfiltered. Like it turns Bubbles, who's using the puppet, turns. Conky turns Bubbles into, for lack of a better term, an like everyone hates him. And they're like, <laughs> we have to kill Conky. And like it ends with them, you know, Conky returns multiple times in the series, but they <laughs> always like kill him, throw him into like a bog. And then he like, the next time you see him, like 10 episodes later, he's like, or like a season later, he's like, he rises out of the bog, like, <laughs> like a zombie or something coming back to life. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, oh, but anyway, let's get back to Chris and Esau. It's pretty much after this is the radio monologue. Do we have a Do we have a clip of this? I don't think we can play it because it it has the music. I think it's Flight of the Valkyries. It sounds like it's because I know I think they play that song earlier in the episode. It does have some music behind it, but let me just uh, see if we can kind of paraphrase what's going on. All right, I'll just read from the transcript here. So, Chris says. Chris Stevens flying solo once again, bidding a fond adieu to my good friend Esau. Hope the next wayward soul who finds him learns as much as I did from my brief but intense apprenticeship. It's funny, all the qualities that flow so naturally from Esau, like water from a spring melt, are qualities that are in me. And embracing them means embracing Esau's black and white world and turning my back on the rainbow and in one piercing note drowned out the orchestra in one persuasive voice, silence, a clamoring chorus. 
Uh, I think I read that right. Sorry. <laughs> this thing is, as we t- said, Charles, is very poorly formatted. Um, I don't know, Esau. Maybe your corn pone platitudes and straight from the hip answers ring truer than my own fuzzy search for enlightenment. But sometimes you just need the uncertainty. If I ever figure out exactly why, I may just look you up. Maybe then we'll have an act worth taking on the road, huh? And yeah, actually that closing line invites the idea that you were um, looking for, Charles, is like, what What if it um, wasn't just like, that seems like there's like a sort of a forced separation. Chris just decides, nah, I'm just going to get rid of uh, Esau. And instead, what if it was more of uh, that idea of like the, the, the show that they can take on the road, like the two sides uh, meeting together and understanding some sort of value, some sort of um, compromise? Yeah, I just wish they arrived at that much better than the way they did it right here. One thing that's really interesting, and I forgot to bring this up, is that when Shelly goes to Chris and asks him for his advice, she kind of lays up a little bit too much initially. Mm -hmm. And Chris has to say, you want a rainbow curve through that with me one more time? Do do you know what that means? No, I don't actually. I love that reaction because... she says it, and there's like a brief moment when you can see like the gear spinning in Chris's head. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> he says, uh, yeah, rainbow curve. And he he um, invokes the the idea of a rainbow again in this closing monologue. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, I was actually looking it up. I was trying to find, I was like, is that a phrase? Is that an expression that I just never heard about? Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, no. But I yeah. also learned something new in that... When we see a rainbow, it's generally like an arch, like a curve, mm. but it's actually not. It's a full mm. circle. Mm. We just don't see it because we're on the ground. We're looking mm-hmm. at it through like a 42 degree angle. I don't know why it's 42, but everybody <laughs> said it was 42 on the internet. Uh, people much smarter than I am. And the thing that makes it kind of beautiful, and you're going to have to work with me here, okay. is that we're not seeing the full picture on this rainbow. We're only seeing literally half because we're seeing an arch. Mm-hmm. But if we had like just a little bit of a different perspective, like we already do with this rainbow, we'd be able to see the full shape of it. But also, in order to even see the rainbow, you kind of need light to be fragmenting off of it. You need a different view in order to make it shine brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like glass as a metaphor. And I think that really goes along with Chris's standpoint in that you need like that uncertainty. You need that thing in which everything's not black and white. You need the full colors of everything mm-hmm. in between. And I think there's something there with them evoking the rainbow so much. Yeah, and the idea of the rainbow only seeing half of it is a sort of uncertainty. I think we I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, probably did, but the idea of like gestalt which is uh you know, I know it in terms of like um, interpreting a piece of art or reacting to a piece of art is the idea of gestalt is you only see certain parts and your mm-hmm. mind fills in the rest. For instance, like a statue that is uh, missing an arm or it's just a bust, you know, mm-hmm. that is that is not is a statue of a person or it's a sculpture of a person. But obviously, you know. It's not, a, it's not, it's not supposed to be a representation of a person who got their arms severed. You know, it's just a <laughs> gestalt idea that we form, uh, the rest. And then, you know, some of the best, um, I guess movies or TV, 
you know, they involve the audience in the interpretation. It's not all just like laid out for you. You have to be actively watching and forming it in your own mind. So it's not just happening on the screen, but it's happening um, in your head as well. It plays out in your mind. So yeah, I mean, maybe the rainbow curve, uh, the uncertainty is in a way like a gestalt idea. Yeah, I love it. Well, that's it for Chris's plotline with the dummy. We got two other plotlines left. We got Joel's dag, short, sort of short plotline, which ropes Ed into there. Mm-hmm. And we got Shelly's plotline. Which one do you want to go to? Uh, do you have preference or? Mm, I guess we can go to Joel's, save Satan for the end. Yeah, okay, that sounds great. So Joel is also the the beginning of the episode. So that's how we start. Um, we start with an opening gambit. Joel is filling some pill bottles and Ed comes in to deliver some paperwork. And he says, uh, Ed says to Joel, you know, Ruthann said I can stay and help you if this is uh, important, if it's really important. And Joel's like, important? Are you kidding me? This is a clinical study from Johns Hopkins. He's basically like saying like this is the, you know, he feels very um, respectable that he's gotten this chance to uh, run this test. I think it, I think it's uh, because there was like an overflow and they were like for, for the clinical study at Johns Hopkins and they just like needed more help. They needed to outsource some things. And uh, apparently Joel has been very good with data sets in the past. Like maybe he's really good at keeping records, keeping tabs on the citizens in Sicily. And it's like a small pool, you know, it's a, it's a contained, um, I guess, uh, pool of subjects. Um, so they chose him to take part in this test. However, as soon as Ed gets there, Joel's like, oh, I got to go pick up Marilyn. Um, I forget why, but Ed is in charge of, um, the pills while Joel's gone. He explains, I think that, uh, I think he explains in this scene that it's like a, the pills are a test to see if it can stop the common cold. And one jar of pills is, uh, the actual drug that they're testing. The other jar is placebo. And he explains to Ed that, like, don't let anyone touch these. It'll, like, tamper with the experiment. So he leaves, and Ed is there. I guess he's just kind of, like, looking at the pills or something, but he's interrupted by a cat that enters the room, and Ed's like, Bartholomew, you can't be in here. What are you doing? Hey, one of the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles? Bartholomew. Oh, tell me about this. Yeah, yeah, you know, the 12 apostles. Um, For the... The Last, the last supper, supper, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah, which, by the way, like, surely they did not call that the Last Supper to his face. <laughs> surely they didn't, like, come into the room and they're like, hey, Jesus, you ready for the Last Supper? And Jesus is like, the what now? The what? <laughs> uh, Bartholomew's here. And uh, he ends up, Ed's, like, trying to get this cat out. Doesn't want it, I guess. Well, I mean, like, he doesn't want the cat to tamper with the pills, but uh, obviously I guess the cat's not allowed in this. Uh, I think they're in the chapel. I think that's where this is happening, you know, like the Sicily church area. And somehow the cat gets under the table. Ed crawls under the table. It's like a folding table with all the pills and stuff on top. And Ed gets closer to the cat. All of a sudden, the cat freaks out and hisses just out of nowhere. I think Ed maybe startled him. And that that startles Ed, uh, causing him to hop up, spill all the pills off the table. And uh, yeah. That that's that's a that's a problem. Yeah, it's kind of like a wacky sitcom little thing right there. Not really a big fan of that. 
Um, but uh, hey, you gotta need something to get the plot going, and I, I guess this mm-hmm. is it. That's what they settled on. So yep. we can we can deduce that Ed tried to put the bottles in whatever way that he could, just tried to get it done. Yeah. So then we get to the next scene where Joel is now distributing the pills. He's marking it all down. Who's getting the placebo? Who's getting the real one? And Ed asks Joel, like, hey, if they take like, you know, there's not like repercussions though, right? And Joel says, the only repercussions is that the study is invalidated, but no, no one's going to die or anything like that. Yeah. Which is good. It's great. But yeah, uh, Ed doesn't own up to the truth. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, he was worried that if you mix up the pills, it could be toxic is what he said in the words uh, in, in the script. And Joel's like, no. Um, but yeah, that's pretty short scene. But we just basically see that Ed, uh, one, doesn't own up. And two, we reiterate, I don't know if they said this in the first scene, but I'm pretty sure. But if not, they definitely say it here that any sort of mix up would invalidate the study, and especially if it happens more and more, the study would be uh, worthless, I guess. Uh, so the next time, oh no, no, actually, first it's Maurice <laughs> comes in to see Joel. Another short scene. Maurice is um, trying to suggest that the pills are. Um, this is just a cover up for something stronger. Like it's not just like a pill that's supposed to cure the common cold. They're te- they're using us as lab rats to test out. What Maurice says is an appetite suppressant. He explains these symptoms to Joel, and Joel's like, "Okay, so you're just trying to say that the that that there's some sort of, some sort of appetite suppressant here." And Maurice is like, "No, I know there is. Like, I know there's some crazy, crazy cocktail of drugs in here. Like, tell me what's going on, Joel." Joel basically says, "I could never tell you if you got the placebo or not, and I would never tell you what it is, but I'll I'll certainly mark down your symptoms uh, for the study." And that brings us to Hayden, who is saying that when he took the pills, he was able to fill half a rail cart this morning without his pecs feeling even sore at all. So we got Maurice thinking that it's a like a hunger suppressant of sorts. Mm-hmm. And we have Hayden, who's thinking that it's a steroid, I guess. Yeah, well, he calls it, he's sitting in the brick with Ed. He, he makes reference to it as the Ivy League speedball. Uh, and then he call he also calls them hoppers later. So maybe like some sort of um, I'm, I'm even blanking on the term, but like basically what like a caffeine is like an upper uh, a stimulant maybe. Mm. Yeah, stimulant. And uh, he he says you know oh it's because Ed is sitting next to him and this is another plot line. But Roger, the salesman from this episode, the Satan character, walks up behind them and. Uh, sort of like this weird whistling wind sound effect comes by and Ed says, oh, I felt like an Arctic blast. And Hayden says, you know, hoppers can do that. It cuts off the blood to your toes. Um, I think that's just in reference to Ed later determines that this character, Roger, is Satan. But that's another plot line we'll get to here. Hayden is talking about how Holling said that Maurice said that these pills are actually something else. And there's a couple of deleted scenes in this episode, Charles, but I, don't, I, I haven't shown, I, I didn't notify you about them, but they're pretty easy to, um, to speak about quickly. They, they both uh, have to deal with the different townsfolk. Um, I know there is a scene in this episode where Halling talks about certain effects he's feeling, but there's another deleted scene where he talks about this, how his like memory is just spot on now. Um, and then there's a scene with two two actors that are like uh, joggers and they're twins, uh, two men that are like jogging. 
and they they uh, they're jogging down the street and they bump into uh, Dr. Fleischman, and they're concerned about like volleyball or tennis or something. And uh, one of them is like, I just want to know that I'm taking the same pill as my brother. And Joel's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, I'm just going to start taking uh, my brother's pills from now on, just like, you know, to level the playing field here. Because um, they want to, they are like similar, I guess, as twins, but they want to, they don't want any uh, handicaps or advantages. And Joel's basically like, no, you can't do that. And they run off. And that's basically <laughs> it. Yeah. And of course, they don't know whether it's the placebo or the actual one, or even if the actual one even does that. Uh, I think there's like a lot of articles, like scientific articles that are written on the power of placebos, talking about how they can do the unusual in such a usual thing. You think it's going to do it, and so you endow it with special properties, and then it actually does it. I had like, like tangentially related, like I kind of had a similar thing in that uh, I remember when I was trying to like test into like a like a special program, mm-hmm. there was like this thing where they gave you two sheets of paper, and on one sheet of paper it would have a word, let's say cow, and if the other person said cow, you have to say the word that's opposite on the other side of the paper. So, for instance, if they said cow, I would have to say blanket, and so they gave me about a minute. To memorize as many words mm. as I could right mm-hmm. there. So they would be like, cow, blanket, lamp, blue, bookshelf, extraordinary. Something like <laughs> that. I remember thinking on the moment, uh, I remember telling myself, and I was only like, I don't know, like 14 or 15 at the time. I remember thinking to myself saying like, okay, actually carve this into the annals of your brain. Because this is obviously like an important test. And just remember it. I remember thinking... <laughs> To myself in that minute. And that's how I was able to like memorize a bunch of the words. And to this day, that test still rings out to me. So anytime you hear cow, you think of blanket. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're saying? Or? Yeah, like a Manchurian candidate type of yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by this is that like, because I wanted to endow this moment with special properties, mm. it actually came true because I forcibly sat myself down in that one minute of time and said, hey, actually remember this. Mm-hmm. And it was weird how it actually worked. So I think that like in these people's cases, they have like a similar thing where they're saying like, hey, actually remember this because I took this pill and it allows me to do this. And that's why they're able to do all these things. They're drawing that conclusion, but because it's on their mind and they're trying to focus, it's like what, you know, they're going to take this pill and it's like the obvious thing is like, am I going to get a cold? Like that's the first thing you think of. But you want to think about because Joel probably told them, hey, if you experience any side effects, let me know. That's important for the study. So they're all thinking of, as you're saying, every little thing that happens to them, every effect they feel, they attribute to the pill. And then it becomes this placebo effect where they think it's a stimulant or appetite suppressant or, uh, I guess in, in Holling's case, like something to do with like his memory enhancement. But yeah, that's, that's a crazy story of, the, uh, of that test that you took. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Did you not have to do that? Because yeah, no, you're in that same program, right? Yeah, I don't. Re- I remember. Yeah, there was like a lot of different things, but I do remember seeing like having like the tiles, like different colored tiles, and then they make a shape of it, and then they mix them up, and it's like, all right, now recreate that shape with the same tiles. It's maybe like I don't know, twenty five tiles or something. 
in a square. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they had Something a very like similar that. one to me. It, it got progressively harder. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Like it would start off very simple and it would just keep going. And I think I got to like level nine or something, like the ninth try, mm-hmm. like the, the quote unquote levels. And before <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. Um, right before I hop off of this, I do think it's kind of strange. I mean, maybe it's true, but like I, I don't see how you can test like a five-year-old to see if they're actually really smart. <laughs> it's like the test you're basically applying is like, hey, what color is this crayon? And you're like, blue. It's like, All right, whoa, this kid is gifted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what how they form those tests, but yeah, it's funny. It's like- <laughs> well, going forward into the next scene, which still has Hayden and Maurice, we see that Hayden's loading up the back of his truck with all sorts of logs, logs that he obviously chopped down because he's... Got some strength coursing through his veins. <laughs> and this is where Maurice tempts him and says, Hey, if someone were to go into Dr. Fleischman's office and steal like the secret formula, <laughs> then we could find out what this actual what this drug is. Now I'm not saying you should do this, but if someone were to do this, I'm gonna give you my ladder. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because he goes on about he's like bribing Hayden with this uh telescoping ladder and Hayden is like come on Maurice you know I wouldn't do that and he starts bribing him and Hayden's like oh Maurice please no he's like I, so, I love uh oh go ahead go ahead so sorry to cut you off no, I just yeah. gotta get this off my chest <laughs> so obviously like Hayden's like the worst person in North <laughs> in Sicily right he is like well I mean, in this situation you would say that uh Maurice is like really the puppet master but I agree Hayden is only uh like a bad character. And uh, it, the only step up he gets from being like this terrible thief is that he's he's not, in this episode, he's more of a lackey, but uh, he's not like really the one, the mastermind. But I think it's funny in this episode that there is a little bit of that turn because in the previous episodes that we've been watching, he's always just like, no one likes him except maybe Ed. Uh, but in this situation, it's funny because he is doing, still doing bad Hayden stuff, but uh, I kind of like that he's not like outright evil and he's kind of more of just like a funny lackey that in the end, like he doesn't really hurt anybody, at least in this episode, you know? Uh, I think what I'm trying to get at is like even the worst characters in Northern Exposure are redeemable and you can laugh at them and you can enjoy them. So hopefully Hayden's having a little a little turn to where he's not just like a despicable, like everyone hates Hayden. <laughs> like, is that really what the townsfolk fall to there? They're like, Hey, I need some like dirty stuff done. Let's enlist Hayden. That's yeah. why we keep him in the town of Sicily. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. That's his like, it's the, the shoes he fills. Um, but later, I think it's the next morning. Joel is like collecting evidence in the office. Marilyn comes in and he's like, don't touch anything. Someone broke into the office last night and we're going to catch them. Like, uh, we're going to use all this evidence. We're going to figure out who does it. And we're going to like rat them out. And no one's going to, like all the town's going to hate them, <laughs> basically. Uh, he's like going, Joel's trying to do something with like trying to lift some prints from the uh, light switch. And Marilyn says, you know, it was Hayden Keys and he never turned the lights on. And Joel's like, wait, what? She shows him that she found a book of matches on the ground and it has Hayden's name on it. I think it also says like firewood, septics, and then his phone number. So he dropped his matches when he when he came into the office and stole the, uh, well, at first Joel was like, yeah, it's weird. They didn't like steal any pills or anything. Uh, nothing was taken out of place. But Marilyn says, I think he wanted to know what the, um, 
like he wanted to know the names and like the data, like who was getting placebo, who was getting something else. But did he not steal? Like that was his mission from Maurice is that he would steal a pill, right? So maybe he did steal a pill. I thought he like stole some papers. Right. Or something. Or like looked at the papers, I think. Yeah, that Joel had written down on who got placebo and who got the, and it also told like information on what the pill actually is because that leads Mm. us to the next scene where we get Joel confronting Maurice. (laughs) And I'm not, I don't really quite understand this scene because Maurice has this indignant anger to him that says like, how dare you turn me into a guinea pig? You knew I was on this placebo and you didn't say anything. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, Maurice, it's, it's the so entire dumb. point of the experiment. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, why are you, what? <laughs> he didn't even hide that from you. He like explicitly was like, hey, this is an experiment to see if placebos work, basically. Right. <laughs> why are you angry at that? We skipped a scene where Joel is like uh, looking for Hayden and he bumps into Eugene. He's like, hey, have you seen Hayden? Oh, yeah. And Eugene's like, oh, yeah, he's right there. And then uh, Hayden's like coming out of the store. Hayden catches a glance at Joel and then he just starts running like really fast, but not without saying, like, as he's running, he turns and he's like, it wasn't my idea. It was Maurice. He bribed me. So then that leads to Joel running up to Maurice and they get in that screaming match. And yeah, it's it's a ridiculous stance that Maurice has. It's, you know, that's the whole point of it all. He thinks he's maybe, um, he deserves a, a different treatment, perhaps. Maurice. Yeah, that leads us to another scene where Ed is meeting with Joel. Joel's on the phone with Johns Hopkins and he's trying to relay the results of the experiment. But before he can finalize the details, Ed gives him the truth. I think we got a soundbite. Yeah, I got the bite right here. Let's listen. Yeah, yeah. There's just two huge problems with the initial reporting. A, you got half the sample group is con- convinced that the, the drug has made them human dynamos. And B, um, the placebo is reporting side effects virtually the same levels as the drugs. I mean, it's, it's literally as if someone had, had taken the results and just tossed them up in the air. Someone did. Uh, uh, actually, I'm going to call you right back, okay? Yeah. What'd you say? The pills are all mixed up, Dr. Fleischman. Yeah, the results that Joel is getting from all these, um, the feedback and the, from the test is that effectively it's as if someone had taken the results and just tossed them up in the air, he says. And this is how Ed admits that Bartholomew was there. He explains everything else, um, how, how they got all mixed up. And now Joel is fearing that his reputation is ruined. Um, he's upset with Ed, uh, but he's not yelling at him like he would yell at Maurice. And I think that's pretty cool. Like, you know, this, this seems in character for the moment. Cause you know, we, we oftentimes get to see Joel, all of his hopes and dreams squandered and <laughs> dashed away. So we see, we see he has a lot of, you know, he's, he's not always over the top, especially with Ed, um, who I think he, he views as a close friend, but the, the ending of this scene does seem like something that's a little different from what we might expect in Northern Exposure. So, you know, he doesn't yell at Ed. He's like, whatever, Ed. Like, um, I don't actually remember how he ends the conversation with Ed, but um, he gets up and just goes into his office. And Ed is left there standing in the in the lobby, I guess the waiting room. But he can hear sounds from the office of just like objects clattering, being thrown around. And it goes on for a little bit. It's not just like one or two. Like it sounds like Joel is tearing it apart and it's comedic effect because we don't see Joel doing this. We just see Ed 
standing there hearing the sounds and like walking away, leaving the office and closing the door. I think, you know, for me, that moment is uh, to serve like a little bit of comedy. But I think the scene could have just ended with Joel getting up and going into his office and then Ed maybe feeling a little bad and leaving. I thought the sound effects was a, took it a little too far, maybe. Yeah, I guess it's to press in the guilt into Ed because yeah. we know that Ed's trying to make up to him in the final scene. Uh, he's saying like, hey, can I wash your windows? Can I do really like whatever I can offer mm-hmm. in order to help you make up for it? And Joel is initially dismissive while he's setting up his next experiment that is not nearly as grand as the other one, but it's something. It's I didn't really catch all the details, but it's something involving mice. Yeah. Because mice can't waylay into you. They can't threaten <laughs> you with legal action. They can't really do much. I, I guess that Joel really just plays the role of the effect yeah. in this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I mean by this is that he has no real agency. He's just reacting to things. He wants to do this experiment for Johns Hopkins. Ed, by mistake, messes up the entire operation. And the key growth this episode lies on Ed mm-hmm. because he owns up to his mistake. And that owning up to the mistake is what allows him to get forgiven by Joel because Joel sees that he is honest in his failure. So he says like, Hey, you know what, Ed, if you actually want to be of help, you can fill up this water bottle for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this entire thing is like less of a Joel plot line and more Ed. Yeah. This is definitely an Ed plot. I think you, you stated it pretty well. It's like Joel is the effect. I think you said, yeah, he's kind of there as the, as the situation that Ed finds himself in. But yeah, it is nice because um, it's one of those like non-accepting acceptances where Joel is like, try, you know, not trying to immediately apologize to Ed, but he's like, yeah, come on, you can help me with my experiment. The experiment was, um, there is a fancy term he uses, but then he explains it's salt depletion on the brain, the effects of salt depletion on the brain. And yeah, I think the the main thing about the mice is, as he brought up, it's like mice don't... Uh, conspire to commit felonies is what he says. They don't trade medication. They don't threaten uh, thirst strikes. So yeah, I think he's, uh, Joel's a little fed up with the way the people in the town were reacting. I mean, um, maybe it's partly because he, I mean, he never did it on screen, but he probably told the patients like, you know, let me know if you're experiencing any symptoms, side effects. So that might've, uh, that might've gone a little like run that idea ran a little wild and, and the, the heads of the townsfolk and the mines. So they probably started, uh, as you said, experiencing side effects that weren't there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much that plot line there with the, um, the placebo and the pills. Let's hop to the beginning and do the Shelly Satan plot line. Yeah. So we get introduced to this character of Satan. who's driving, it's a pretty ordinary car. Mm-hmm. It's got some bumper stickers on it. One of them says, take a one-hour vacation. And the other one says, a whole new you. Ask me about it. And he opens the door, and we see that he works for Insta Spas, Bathtub Whirlpools, a.k.a. Jacuzzis. Mm-hmm. He says Jacuzzi is a trade name, I think, later. But yeah, that's that's the idea we're thinking of here. Uh, the song, I believe it's Flight of the Valkyries. Um, and I think that's what it says on Moose Chick as well. So that's what I'm going with. But that's like the song that's playing as this man drives up. His name, he doesn't give it in this scene because he doesn't really speak. But 
Later, he calls himself Roger Brewster. And then to Shelley, he calls himself Satan, eventually admits, um, you know, his identity. But uh, this scene is interesting. He's got in his car, he pulls over to the side road and, and uh, takes out a goat, a, a goat with horns um, from, from his car, uh, I guess, to let the goat go to the bathroom or maybe chew on some grass. And as he's, uh, you know, walking over to the side of the road with the goat, a cyclist uh, pedals by really, really fast and nearly swipes him and the goat and they almost fall, fall aside. And we can see from Roger's reaction, uh, he's like angry that this cyclist, you know, didn't have any um, recognition that there are people there. He wasn't cycling safely. And I think we're to imply that Roger telekinetically pops the tire because we hear a popping sound effect and then the cyclist like burns out and falls off. I did want to mention the actor for Roger Brewster is Charles Martin Smith. And uh, he's acted in a lot of movies, but one that I saw recently that I really liked was John Carpenter's Starman. I thought he was amazing in that. Uh, kind of like a supporting role, but I think he's like that. He's kind of like a character actor. He's also a pretty famous director. His first movie that he directed was uh, this horror movie called Trick or Treat in 1986, which I think is pretty popular. And then he also directed the first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think he's directed a few times in that series. He directed Air Bud uh, <laughs> and uh, Dolphin Tail and much more. I think he's been doing more of those sort of like animal movies like Dolphin Tail of late, uh, but he does other stuff too. But I thought those are some pretty big credits there. Um, yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's another, um, I would even say for the time, like 1994, it's a pretty, pretty cool name to bring in as a guest star, Charles Martin Smith. Uh, yeah. I, I love this guy. Speaking of Airbud, do you know how I know that Yao Ming is a very <laughs> rare special case? I think you've uh, said this before, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's because there have been more movies made about dogs playing basketball than Asians <laughs> playing basketball. <laughs> yeah, Asian basketball players are not very... Uh, common, I guess. There's also that, we probably said this as well, but that joke in um, Airplane where the flight attendant comes by and uh, like is like, would you like any light reading? And she hands them like a little pamphlet that's like um, Jewish American basketball players. And it's just literally like not even a page. It's like a little <laughs> note card. Uh, yeah. Well, that is a very interesting guest star for them to have grabbed. And uh, by all means, I think he's a good actor. thought he sold the role very well. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's like some truth. Well, we can talk about it a little bit more okay. about his profession, because that's what they're going to talk about in the next scene, which is Maggie's only scene. So yeah. mm -hmm. Maggie's got this little book club that she's running and all these different people from around the town are joined in to go talk about their thoughts on the book. But before they get into it, Maggie says, hang on, I never usually do this, but, you know, I, I really wanted to showcase this man's product. Thought it did a lot for my attention. Thought it was fantastic. I thought it was really interesting that it's not necessarily that, like, Satan barged his way into the room. It's just that Maggie invited mm -hmm. Satan to come. I think that's a big distinction. Yeah. And that's that's where she introduces Roger Brewster, Jacuzzi Salesman. Yeah, he's going to make his little presentation. Shelley actually arrives late, and this is important because there's going to be a developing plot line between Roger and Shelley. But yeah, I like that note that Maggie invited uh, the devil in, perhaps. I also think it's a pretty clever way 
uh, to depict the devil. You know, it's not something you would expect. This sort of mousy, uh, milk toast character of Roger Brewster, very um, unintimidating, but that's how he gets you, you know? So um, he's a salesman and he's making this presentation about the um, one hour vacation Insta Spa Model 2000. It converts the bathtub into a mini whirlpool, as he would call it. Again, he says jacuzzi is a trade name, so he calls it a mini whirlpool. You know, he he asks Shelly to, um, you know, take a, dim, I guess you call it a demonstration or just like test it out, you know, uh, for herself so that like all the ladies are taking their shoes off so they can put their toes in the water and feel the warm and the bubbles. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool in contraption. It just kind of like fits over the side of your side of your tub and there's like something on the bottom that jets out the bubbles. But during this demonstration and this trial test, Roger starts to hand out little gift baggies, little baskets, probably like bath salts and things like that, soaps and things like that. One for each of the ladies here at the women's group, except uh, it turns out he's one short. He doesn't have one for Shelly, but he promises something extra special for her. That brings us to the next uncomfortable scene, which is where Roger makes his presence known in Shelly's place under the disguise, the... Uh subterfuge of bringing her her gift like you were talking about but it's really just uh just a place to trap her because he wants to make a move on her though of course shelly's like no absolutely not yeah it actually quickly like kind of non sequitur what does he say uh roger says a woman like you can really bring out the devil in a man and he starts mm-hmm. like moving close to her like he's gonna grab her or kiss her she quickly kicks him out um slams the door behind him uh, the gift that he brings her is a bootleg cassette of Black Sabbath live at the Cow Palace. I was unfamiliar with the Cow Palace, but it's like a famous venue, I think, like around San Francisco area. But Shelley says, wow, I love Black Sabbath. How did you know? He says, I'm a salesman. I make my living reading people. And uh, yeah, I mean, that plus like the he drops the 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 idea. It's like you could really bring out the devil in a man. So like we're starting to sense that. Uh, he's got this goat with horns on it. Like, I don't know. I don't know how early you figured out he was the devil, but pretty early on, he's like doing telekinesis and he's got a creepy goat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I didn't figure out that until they actually laid it out okay. to me. Uh, yeah. Well, not with a lot of cuts. We return back to these two because we were cutting back into the break. Shelly's mm-hmm. doing her thing and Roger comes in trying to apologize. And he says, I'll try to make it up for you. Whatever you want. One wish. No fine prints. The universe is yours. And Shelly wishes for something unusual, I guess. Yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Let me look this up really quickly. I didn't I didn't think to find the date on this. Oh, it works in perfectly. So Shelly wishes for legalized gambling. She wants the brick to become this big old casino hub like Las Vegas. And what I thought was really interesting is that in Stephen King's book, The Stand, Mm -hmm. published in 1978, that one's about like the ultimate battle of good versus evil. Right. And I think that like pretty much Satan is personified in that (laughs) story as well. And the good people have their base of operations in Boulder, Colorado, Mm -hmm. and the evil people have it in Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a characteristic, I guess we think of like 
the devil and sin in Las Vegas. Sin City, I guess, is its nickname. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said it. Yeah, it's that does seem a little. I mean, I guess it makes sense that Shelly likes gambling in Las Vegas, but yeah, she doesn't really talk about that in any other episode. But I could buy it, I guess. That works. But, you know, I think the prompt that Roger gives her is, what would make you happier than anything in the world? And Shelly calls it her ultimo fantasy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was just, maybe, gam- you know, Las Vegas was on her mind that week or something. So she's like, <laughs> first thing that comes to mind. Um But yeah, so I believe it's like the next scene is like her dream sequence. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. Not yet. Not yet. It's uh, the next scene. Is it actually coming true? Because we cut to Marie's dance store and Maurice (laughs) is reading. He's reading the paper and he's saying like, hey, through some hullabaloo right here, it could actually turn out that we can get what the lower 48 have and we can get some legalized gambling here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something in the paper says, I don't know if it's another city in Alaska or maybe in Canada, somewhere nearby. Basically, gambling was just legalized there. And um, he's just reading that aloud in the paper in Ruthann's store and um, Shelly overhears it. Yeah, he's like, I think Sicily could qualify. Maurice apparently has some some friends, uh, I don't, some like lawyer friends or something like that or gaming law or something like that. But he's like, yeah, he says that it might turn out that Sicily would legalize uh, gambling. And from that, now hold up, is is the next scene the dream or when Shelly's like reading? No, this is, the next no. scene is Shelly in, I want to say like either Ruthann's basement or, yeah, I think it would be that because that's like where the library is, but not in the library, in the basement where they keep all the secret hidden books like the Necronomicon. I, like, I don't know. It's like this <laughs> well, leather bound book with the pentagram. Well, go ahead. We're almost there. We're at that key point where we figure out that he's Satan. And oh, they that, out. that happens even before that. Little, that. Uh, yeah, they got those little uh, cooking shindig. And they have a lot of fun with the language. Ruth Ann's saying, like, it'd be like my own personal hell to travel with a goat. And he and the devil's like, it is hell on the upholstery. <laughs> and he tries to corner Shelly off again. And Shelly's like, I bet you actually did know that gambling was coming over there. And he's like, I did. Like, I didn't know that stuff. But that is because I'm the devil. Yeah, he flat out tells her that he's the devil and that antidepressants are limiting his like scope of power. He says that uh, phrase like an idle mind is the devil's workshop or something like that. And that now with these different antidepressants, people, uh, I don't know, I guess it like numbs their mind or something like that. I really don't understand what the argument is here. But uh, just to, you know, kind of round out what's happening here is Shelly is like listening to him. But then by the end of their conversation, she tells him that he's got low self-esteem And I think she's like, doesn't believe that he's the devil. Like, I think she thinks that he's making this up to feel better or something about himself. So, you know, he's being pretty obvious with her and she just, you know, tells him he's got low self-esteem, walks away and they're doing like a barbecue. And like when she walks away, she walks past the barbecue grill out there, the little kettle grill. And, uh, you know, Roger's really angry in his face and the grill flares up with fire. He does more like, pyrotechnic stuff there uh, pyrokinesis i guess you'd call it yeah i think there's there's some sort of statement here that i'm not grasping and i'm sure i'm sure someone can piece to pieces way better than i can but like you said 
he's talking about Prozac and how mm-hmm. it, it fills in the gap because he says like an idol, an idol minds as like the devil's plaything, and Prozac pills are the bane of it. And it's no coincidence that Joel's plotline would also involve pills. But even more than just that, the devil himself, Roger, is a spa salesman. And in his bumper stickers, there is an emphasis on being transported to a different place, like taking a one-hour vacation, Mm. letting your things dissolve. And I think there's some sort of statement trying to be said where you're, you're being taken away from this mortal realm for just like an hour or so. And... I don't know. Like, I know that there's a connecting piece here. I just can't thread it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think um, maybe that's the idea. It's like when you're taking that vacation, sitting in that spa, you're becoming idle, you know? You're kind of drifting away, away from your life. And I guess you could say that that would um, allow the devil to enter your mind, perhaps. Uh, But I guess that's his angle. That would make sense why he's trying to sell this in particular. Like, I think... uh, I think of of all the um, professions that you might link to Satan, you know, there's like lawyers, accountants. We talked about this, Charles, how accountants <laughs> are always like evil in the media, or at least in Northern Exposure. Um, and then salesmen, I think, are also, because they kind of con you, you know, some salesmen are cons. Um, so I think that's what I get from that. I, I think that's a good, that's interesting to point out though. I like, Charles, that you're saying it's important to focus on like, why is he selling this in particular? I think there's a way you can tie it in. Yeah. He's also right before we get to the next scene, he's also eating an apple. What is that? Like a, the, like the um, garden of Eden type thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He's eating an apple right there. <laughs> so now we cut to that basement scene that you're talking about where Shelly is studying through the, uh, I guess it's an Economicon. I really don't know what the card. Yeah, it's got it's leather bound with a pentagram on the cover. It looks like a pretty thick tome. Um, yeah, why is that down in Ruthann's basement? Also, the sound in this in this scene, there's like a slight reverb on their voices that makes it sound makes this room feel like a cavern. Uh, the way their voices echo a little. And she's reading, flipping through pages. I forget exactly the text, but there's like pictures of like satyrs, like little goat men, you know, and stuff like that. And Ed is offloading something downstairs, down here in this basement. And she says, Ed, do you believe in the devil? And his response is, "Mm, pretty much. I like, uh, he says uh, that Leonard, Leonard told him, you can't have a tug of war with no one on the other end of the rope. I guess signifying that if there is good, there is evil. So if there's an ultimate good, there's an ultimate evil like Satan or something like that. And um, I think they're talking about Roger, how he's funny. Shelly is um, maybe taking to heart what uh, when Roger actually told her that I am Satan. So she's been thinking about that. And Ed says that he could he could kind of tell some you know that he was the devil or he could figure it out. And I guess that harkens back to the scene when there's one interaction with Ed and Roger. I described when Roger like walks up behind them and we hear that whoosh of the wind and Ed gets cold. Maybe that's his uh, Native American insight or whatever. That's that's very common in this show that he has some sort of sixth sense. Uh, but to end this scene, Shelly is looking at a picture, as I said, of like a, a goat man. Ed leans in with his pencil that he's got in his little pocket and he draws glasses over the satyr's eyes. 
and it looks like Roger Brewster in this drawing. So we're to believe that whoever drew this um, etching or whatever uh, from this book of like hundreds of years old, you know, drew a picture of the same Roger. Like, like Satan materializes always as this guy who looks a little, I don't know, he looks kind of like a chipmunk or a beaver or something. <laughs> I mean, it's an unassuming form right there. Right, right. It kind of matches up <laughs> what he's uh, what he's got with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then we get that dream sequence that you were talking about with mm-hmm. Shelly. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Shelly wakes up at night. Hauling's nowhere to be seen, but she like runs out to, um, there's like these flashing lights outside of her window. And you can see when she runs to the window, we see in the reflection of the glass, there's like a marquee, like a sign lit up and flashing. And she looks outside the window down to the street. There's like a limousine parked outside of the brick. And then when she leaves the window to go like run downstairs, the focus is like pulled to where where the reflection on the glass is now in focus. And it's a sign for the brick, but it's like very Las Vegas style, not like what we see because the brick does have like a marquee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it has any lights on the sign, but um, it has its own logo. This is a whole new logo, new color scheme, like flashing bulb lights. Uh, pretty cool. And I'm guessing this is on a set. So they could, you know, they didn't have to like erect a sign. They could just like put the sign. If this isn't a special effect, they, you know, just put the sign in a position to where it would reflect on the glass. Because that is a tricky effect to get like a reflection. But um yeah, works pretty well. You just need like a something very bright or lit very well, mm-hmm. and it'll reflect in that glass. Yeah, really crafty design by them right there. Good catch. It's a you know, it's kind of like a symbol of Las Vegas itself. We got we got the slot machines. We got the little uh, red lamps that hang over. Got the what is that game called? Where you like you always see it? They like throw dice onto the green felt table. Crap, like moving. Yeah, crabs. Got crabs. You got the stand-up comedian trying to apply his trade. You got a lot of those things right there. Are you a big fan of casinos or like Las Vegas in general? I'm not a big fan of casinos. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast. Uh, I don't, I, 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 I can't say that I've never gambled. Like uh, actually there's some casinos. I think they still do this. There's some casinos in New Orleans with uh, big parking lots downtown and uh, if you gamble for like 30 minutes, then you get free parking. So you just go park oh. in the parking garage, go do what you got to do. And then before you leave, sit at like a penny slots machine or, you know, like the cheap slots. And you also get free drinks in the casino. So that could be a fun time, a fun way to spend like 30 minutes. But uh, the the one experience I had, apart from just that, like sitting at a um, penny slots, was um, one of my... Uh, partners of the time, uh, her family was in town and her little brother had just turned, I guess the gambling age is 21. And he was like, I want to gamble. Like I want to play a uh, blackjack. Like uh, he was really into it, I guess, cause he had just turned of age. So we went to the casino and I watched him lose a hundred dollars in less than a minute playing blackjack. Cool. Cool. And, uh, you know, we had, go- we had to go to the ATM to pull that cash out. So it's like, at that point we were like, Oh, uh, like he was like, uh, you know, we could go back to the ATM, but it was more just like, yeah, let's leave. You know, we were just there for like two <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, I know that's not what always happens, but <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't have that kind of money. Yeah. 
I also think I, I have like a sad memory associated with it and it's not even my own sadness. And it's just that one time I was traveling with my family and we had to make, it was on Christmas day. We were traveling back home and we had to make a pit stop like you always do. But the only place that was open on Christmas day was this, uh, like gas station casino. Yeah. You've seen them all the time mm-hmm. when you're like Nino's casinos open all day, <laughs> all hours of the night. And I walked into there and it was filled with cigarette smoke. Uh, it was almost palpable. You could right. see the, the smoke just wafting through the room, dimly lit. And the only things that it would light up were the slot machines. And it would light up the faces of the denizens that were pulling them. And this was Christmas Day at like 7 p.m. And these people, for whatever reason, just didn't have like family to go to. Or mm-hmm. they felt that the slot machine was more pressing than the family. And they were just there. It was like six or seven of them just pulling away at the slot machine. And I remember how sad that was. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, yeah, no, I'm never going to gamble. <laughs> like, holy crap. And so I've actually been to Las Vegas myself when I was like younger mm-hmm. and I had the same feeling. It just, it doesn't bring me any joy. It's scary. I see it this. can be scary. Yeah. It, it feels all artificial. Like the joy, like it, I know the like Disney world, for example, <laughs> that's artificial too. <laughs> But for some reason, that seems more pure. Even its artificiality well, than yeah. compared to like Las Vegas is artificial. I think gambling is like it preys on our, what is it? I don't know if it's called dopamine or whatever. You get like a little kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the same with like those little uh, tap games on your phone and things like that. I do have uh, one good positive story of gambling. Uh, mm-hmm. I was playing in a dive bar uh, where they had like some video poker machines and we were setting up, getting ready to perform the show, just getting our equipment and our instruments on stage. And before we even started playing, uh, this man that was sitting at one of these video poker machines was like, oh my God, I just won a thousand dollars shots for the bar. <laughs> he bought everyone in the bar shots. And so everyone was having a good time. And then we started playing music shortly thereafter, um, which is funny. I thought about the story recently. Sorry to keep going on about gambling, because I was playing another show in another dive bar with video poker machines. This was very recently. Um, and uh, one of the members in the band that night also is one of the owners of the bar. And as we were, I think it was in between set. No, it was actually, we were about to finish our set. And in between like songs, one of the bartenders came up and was like, it was a little awkward because we were still on stage playing. And she was leaned over to the owner who was in our band. and he was, And she was like, uh, this guy just won uh, $1,300 on slots. Like, do I pay him out? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let us, we'll, we'll wrap up the set and I'll pay him out. Different situation where like the man was not like, oh my God, I want $1,000. But, <laughs> you know, he won a lot of money. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had a great time. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, no, I can't do it. Just, no, like, yeah. <laughs> just like you. It's like, I just can't lose that much money in that short amount of time right there. Mm-hmm. So you bring it back to Northern yeah, Exposure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find it so, yeah, that, that this is like Shelly's dream. dream the greatest yeah. <laughs> dream right there. And it's, it's not like this dream sequence is even fancy for like yeah. really anybody that I feel. Because I feel, I don't know, like that stand-up comedian, he's doing a good job. Yeah. He's killing it. But he's also, I don't know, it just feels like a, a grind. Yeah. Feels like he's just going through this thing. We see Chris also kind of like yeah. still with Esau. So he's in his own grind as well. So yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we get people in various forms. You have Ed trying to talk to Shelly about that, saying that like Joel needs his stuff. Like you said before, we got Chris and Esau trying to do their little act. And this is also the only time to be like really see Hauling. Yeah, he's in like one other scene, and I guess I didn't. I guess we I didn't really write it down or skip it over. But there's like a very brief mention, like I said, because he's in a deleted scene where he talks about having like better mental capacity. And there is something in this episode, very short, where he talks about that as well. So I think it's fine that we cut that that deleted scene. It's kind of uh, doubling down. But he is, yeah. I mean, this is probably the most we see him in this episode for sure. He's dressed in a shiny sequin suit and he introduces Chris and Esau. I forget what ends the scene. Like, I guess, do we see Shelly waking up or is it just like cut to the next scene, I think? Might be that. I think it cuts on the next scene. And we actually do see Hauling again, but it's also something very quick. Mm -hmm. So they're back at the break, and we're seeing the morning of of waking up for this dream. And the reason we know this is because Satan is there, and he wants to talk to Shelly about that dream. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, Before I get there, I'll talk about Hauling's little thing very quickly. Mm -hmm. Hauling is saying that this is the first time that he's doing the Times crossword. Mm -hmm. Said he had a little trouble on Pablo Neruda, but after he got through that, he was on a roll. He didn't know whether to attribute it to the pills or not the pills or whatever fortune that was laying it on him. Mm -hmm. But before he leaves, he tells Shelly, hey, table six needs more coffee, decaf. And that's the table that Satan sits at. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I guess I guess Satan drinks decaf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, like it's the things you it's like uh very unoffensive, unassuming, unintimidating sort of like character that you wouldn't expect uh for Satan to be. So she goes to bring him his coffee and he's like, How'd you like it? And you know, so it's understood at this point that Shelly's like, Okay, oh, you were responsible for that, that dream. I think she's still a little upset with him, but she has to when when he asks her, she has to answer like she says she liked. She says it was down, it was fly. So she really, she thought you know that view of the brick in the dream. She thought it was pretty cool in in her um like what what she wanted to do, what her aspiration maybe or just her desires. Now Roger says we can make this happen, but you've got to do something for me, and he wants her to burn Hollings bathrobe, the one that. Shelly has been trying to get him to throw away for years anyway. It's just this like ratty old thing. And um, Shelly's like, wait, what? Like I get this whole casino and all I have to do is like this small little throwaway thing that I didn't, I don't even want hauling to have anyway. Just got to burn that. So that seems pretty easy, but it does escalate a little bit more in this scene because she says, well, what do I tell him? If uh, he asks me what happened, what do I say? And Roger says, just tell him that you gave it to the Salvation Army. And Shelly immediately says, so you mean you want me to lie to him? So that, you know, that starts to escalate it even already before she goes to talk to Chris, which I think we talked about, but we get the idea that there's going to be some breach of trust or some dishonesty that she may have to um, probably have to lean on, you know, probably have to be dishonest with Holling uh, to fulfill Roger's bargain. Yeah. And it's really interesting that this was something that Shelly wanted in a way. It's not like she likes the bathroom. <laughs> She's been trying to convince him a million times to get rid of it. Yeah. So what the devil is simply trying to do is turn that into something evil. Mm-hmm. She naturally wanted to get rid of it, but now it's turning into nefarious reasons. Now, mm-hmm. like exactly what Chris is saying, 
it's not necessarily the act of burning the robe, it's burning his trust. Mm -hmm. That's going to smithereens. And that's also what we see in Shelly's next scene after talking with Chris. Mm -hmm. Shelly's going down to the furnace downstairs in the basement, and she's got the robe, and she's really thinking about it. And she almost (laughs) does it until she has finally gets a conscious, finds her humanity, mm-hmm. and she pulls it out and puts out the fire that's on the robe. Yeah, and I don't think we ever see, like, hauling, checking out that robe later or anything, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, that's fine. I don't think we need that, but it's, like, partially burnt, but she saves it, and I'm sure she's going to have a conversation with hauling about it and explain why she did the right thing and she, like, values his trust more than, you know, we get that, but I, I think uh, the scene we do get instead of that is um, Shelly returns the bootleg tape that Roger gave her. She gives it back to him. And uh, they have a little sayonara scene where she's like, why did you do this? Like, why me? Why are you like preying on me in such a way? And he explains that, I guess this is the way he gets his kicks because he is the devil and he knows how to corrupt people. And there's a lot of people who are already doing evil things, but the idea for him to get a win is he needs to turn someone from uh, the path of good to the dark side. You know, he says, I, if I can get someone pure of heart like you, um, he says, just to let her bumper stray over that white line just a little bit, mm-hmm. then that is really a win. And I think he doesn't say that. I think he just makes this like, like he has this exhilarated expression, like he really wants to to corrupt people, you know? We kind of talked about this scene already too, right? Because he also mentions, you know, God is in the details. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, well, that expression, well, it's a little bit like that for me. You know, the devil's in the details. Right, right. And, you know, the roads, man, they just keep coming back. Right, yeah. Because he's talking white about- line. Yeah, a little yeah, white yeah. line. He's talking about trying to get people off that path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just a very binary thing because it's good and evil. He's evil. God's good. Just wants you to cross that path on the road. Can't be driving on boats, you know, two roads at the same time. (laughs) So simply what he's talking about right here, and he says that I'm going to skip out town. There's a lady's clipping coupons out of her uh, neighbor's newspaper. Yeah, it's like that. That's that's my next lead is like this little old lady. Like maybe I can corrupt her. Mm -hmm. And he skips out town. Uh, Last shot of him is, I think it's like him cleaning his glasses and we get a good look at the road. He has his glasses off. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's some significance, right? Well, the reason I say that is because uh, there is a line that I kind of like, two lines where, you know, he's leaving, he's announcing his departure and Shelly's, you know, kind of like, well, you know, I learned, you know, we learned a lot from this, from this encounter, you know, I'm going to kind of miss my, you know, this was, this was uh, very enlightening for me. And she says to him, I almost said, good luck. You know, she feels bad because she was like about to wish him good luck to corrupt this old lady. and. Roger says, I almost said thanks. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of read that as if, like, maybe the devil had rubbed off on her and she's sort of rubbing off on him. Like, maybe she's turning him towards the path of good, but, you know, I don't think so. But maybe that has something to do with him taking his glasses off, like seeing things clearly, or I don't know. Do you have any read read on the glasses? That's my Uh, read. Not necessarily. Um, just I just know that the glasses to do. Oh, I mean, in a way, like the glasses was a way to identify him as Satan because that's what Ed draws mm, over the picture, right? Draws, like little glasses. True. But otherwise, I think that the Satan plotline was okay. Like it felt within the 
flavor of Northern Exposure right there. I like the character. Yeah, yeah. Like the actor and everything. Uh, this kind of, you know, I feel like they could have played around with that more. Yeah, I mean, I definitely still, I think this is a, this is an okay episode of Northern Exposure. I think uh, my estimation of it is dropping a little. Like I, as I said, the second time I watched it in the sort of, uh, in the background was like, uh, you know, this is, this is so-so. Um, but I definitely enjoyed talking about all these points. Cause I think, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I think there was a lot for me to think about and chew on, even if I didn't think it was like the best episode of Northern Exposure, there's definitely a lot of things going on. And even if, you know, we may say, Charles, you and I may say that perhaps they didn't explore everything fully or they didn't deliver on all the promise of the premise. I think there's still a lot of uh, big ideas that we could talk about here. Okay, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we like to bring on a guest. And this season, we're bringing on fans of Northern Exposure to talk about season six. Uh, and specifically, we're talking about this episode today, The Robe. And we've got a listener from Twitter, at Todd Cooley, or I guess just Todd as he'll introduce himself, fan of Northern Exposure. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's uh, getting started on another rewatch and, um, well, without further ado, let's go ahead and hear what Todd thought about this episode. Hey guys, what's up? It's Todd, um, here to talk about The Robe, um, a very exciting episode. I think very interestingly, uh, revealing of, um, a lot of the characters. So it took a bunch of, uh, notes here and I'll sort of just kind of go through these and, uh, kind of see see where we end up but you know just wanted to note the kind of really interesting opening scene where um Fleischman is in the lab sort of divvying up the placebo pills Ned walks in and everything gets mixed up because of the cat um which is kind of interesting because it kind of it sets this tone of uh chance and luck and doing the right thing and all of these themes that I think are kind of explored later, maybe I'm sort of reading too much into that, but um, I thought that that was a really kind of interesting scene, with the cat kind of coming in and, and being mirrored with um, Roger showing up later on, who I think comes in immediately afterwards. So I think that first of all, just to stay with Fleischman and uh, Ed, it's kind of an interesting storyline in terms of, of Fleischman because you could see his obvious frustration with Ed and, and just his situation, which I think has been boiling up over the last couple of seasons. And so it'll be interesting to see how that resolves itself with Fleischman's position being in Alaska, being away from um, these urban centers that clearly he's always wanted to be a part of and be a doctor um, in and, and live his life around. And so uh, that, that'll that'll be kind of interesting to that'll be interesting to see what their resolution is. So kind of diving or kind of moving past that, going into uh, Roger, uh, I believe his name is he's the salesman that comes to town. Um, I remember thinking he was a really interesting guy when I saw the goat come out of the car. I was like, what is this going to be just kind of like another kooky character? Um, one of the things that I love about the show is the way that it can have these really incredible, deep, uh, cryptic 
turns like at the drop of a hat. And obviously that's what we see here where, um, you know, we think that he's just this whirlpool salesman that's after Shelly. And then he reveals, uh, you know, partway through the episode that he's actually Satan. And uh, I didn't, the thing that, that I realized about the show is watching it. Um, he said that, and I didn't even do a double take. I was just like, oh, obviously he is Satan. That's the logic that the show goes. It's just these, these weird cryptic, um, insane, fantastical things, uh, happen and they happen alongside of the really, uh, common commonalities of life that these folks in this rural place are enjoying. Um, and that's where some of the, a lot of the beauty of the show comes from. Um, but anyway, uh, what an interesting dynamic that was with Roger um, kind of going after Shelly and sort of being obsessed with her throughout the episode. Obviously, she's she would be the character that Satan would want to mess with the most because she's, um, as he says in the episode, you know, pure of heart and um, just kind of uh, her whole character is sort of based around this innocence. And so obviously Satan's going to have a ton of fun um, sort of trying to mess with her. And so it sort of leads into what I was thinking about um, with Chris and Esau and uh, Chris being like this sort of having this internal conflict with himself where he's like, man, um, people like this dummy version of myself better than me um, because the dummy version is able to kind of reduce the complexities of all of the stuff that I'm interested in talking to people about into these black or white issues. Um, and obviously that sort of, uh, is illustrated in the scene where Shelly comes up and asks, uh, Chris, if she's going to go to hell for burning the robe. And, uh, she's just like, Chris, why can't you be like Esau? All I want is an answer out of you. And I think that he's just like, really alarmed because of that or it's sort of understated because it doesn't you don't really hear Chris talking about it but I th I feel like there's there was kind of an interesting internal conflict going on there where he was just like uh you know, why does everyone like this dummy version of myself better than me like it's like you know that I can understand it on an intellectual level but on a social level um I feel like that's kind of a hard realization to come through it's that people um, don't, maybe don't like you for who you are, but maybe they, they, they like the versions of yourself that are more tasteful to them or, or, um, easier to digest for them. So some hard truth is there, but, uh, ultimately, you know, really proud of Shelly for, for not burning the robe. I thought that the, the scene where she goes in to burn the robe, um, was really interesting because you saw the neon sign behind her. And so it kind of alluded to like these, the dreams that she had of the brick and the casino. Um, so I thought that that in particular was maybe one of my favorite shots in the episode, but overall, love the episode. I'm, I think, you know, it was great characterization for Shelly. Um, and for Chris, I, I wish that there was a little bit more time spent with Fleischman because I, I feel like even just with his conversations with Maurice, um, and the whole felony thing that occurred that Maurice sort of orchestrated, um, he's just getting so frustrated. And, uh, I think that we're going to see more of that as the season progresses, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Um, it was a fantastic episode, fantastically weird episode. Um, and, uh, really grateful that, uh, I got chosen to, to talk about it for the, the podcast. So thanks very much for having me. All right. That was Todd's thoughts on the episode. And I just want to go from the beginning of his, uh, of his notes there, just talking about 
the Roger character, the goat, and, you know, just this episode, like any other episode of Northern Exposure, is definitely delivering on the idea that they're going to give you something a little surprising. Like you're, you're a little unsuspecting of what direction the episode will take. And just using this character of Roger that Todd is pointing out is, uh, I think we mentioned this, Charles, in our discussion that Roger is sort of the perfect embodiment for the devil or Satan because he's unsuspecting, he's unthreatening. You would not suspect him to be that. But then it kind of does ultimately make a lot of sense. Like the devil is a a jacuzzi salesman or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that Todd brought up the point that the cat entering into the room where Joel's arranging the pills Mm. is sort of similar to the way that Roger just shows up into the town, which uh, I I don't know why we didn't put these two together, (laughs) but maybe, maybe Roger sent the cat. Or the cat is like an embodiment of Roger's maliciousness, I guess. Bartholomew. What? It, that's just like an old sounding name, but uh, I'm just trying to connect that to some biblical thing or something. I, I had, um, I, I knew somebody yeah. that had a pet cat. Like he found it. It was a stray on the street and they named it Judas. Interesting. Interesting name for a cat. <laughs> yeah. I have never heard anyone like yeah. name anything after Judas. I've e- yeah. I mean I mean I'm sure yeah there's a lot of names come to mind that we should never uh you know <laughs> carry on, you know, continue to call people this name. Uh Judas being one of them. Uh, but let's see, getting back to Todd's thoughts, I, I liked how he was saying this is a, uh, Shelly is sort of the perfect character for Roger to prey on because she is so innocent. And then it made me think, you know, who is more innocent than Shelly in, in Sicily? I mean, uh, obviously there's Ed, maybe they're equally innocent, but I don't know, something about Shelly, it definitely fits for me in this plot line. Like I know Ed has struggled with his own personal demons, but just the... You know, temptation, I think, could, I could see Joel being tempted, you know, but I love the idea of Shelly being tempted in this episode and then being pure of heart, you know, overcoming that. But I don't know. Do you have a, do, do you have a, can you think of anyone more innocent than Shelly or? Well, like it kind of runs with real life, right? Like, can you really have like a quote unquote innocent geezer? Like you're saying uh, innocence is maybe more attributed to youth. Yeah, well, like, you can definitely have, like, an older person that's optimistic, that is very generous. But I think that that's different than innocent. Because unless you, like, lived in a bomb shelter or something, you're probably going to have some wisdom just stockpiled within you as you get older. So, yeah, I I guess just the two youngest people in Sicily are just the most innocent. Yeah, makes sense. Like, innocence and youth closely tied together. I like that a lot. Todd also pointed out how understated Chris is in this episode. And it makes sense because it seems like Esau is doing a lot of the answering and Chris is uh, talking in response and and, um, in argument to whatever Esau says. But just the fact of like what is happening to Chris, he doesn't ever like expound on like how he feels and like this weird situation he finds himself in where the town is treating him a certain way and treating Esau a certain way. So we really just get Chris's 
sort of nonverbal reactions. He doesn't really verbalize his own feelings, I guess, except for in the very beginning and in the very end when he's kind of talking about it on the face. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing to point out. Yeah, it's a very call and response type of thing with dummies and Chris, like Todd mentions, is kind of like the dummy instead. Kind of uh, the one that oh, I see. is Chris not is really putting into thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Todd also mentions that the townsfolk likes diversion of yourself that is easier to digest. Yeah. People, he, you know, what I took from, from what Todd was saying is maybe oftentimes people have certain perceptions of who you are. Other people might have their own version of you, I think is something that uh, Todd was saying, a version that's easier for them to cope with, perhaps. Um, and when you act apart from what someone might expect, um, I guess in this in this instance of this episode, we have the townsfolk really, I think you pointed out, Charles, it's like, it's almost like they're betraying Chris because like, <laughs> this is season six. They all understand how Chris talks and that's why they talk, they like talking to Chris. But in this episode, no, they only like, uh, they only want Esau. <laughs> Forget, you know, our friend Chris that we always used to listen to. Um, yeah, maybe it's just to serve a point, but it's interesting. Yeah, that, that, it's like very similar to that idea that I, I, I think it's more prevalent whenever you're younger. Definitely not so much when you're older, I guess. But it's the idea that you speak differently when you're in different friend groups. Mm-hmm. So for like Chris, yeah, God bless him, is like pretty much always speaking the same, mm-hmm. despite whoever he's talking to. Whereas we're presenting the idea that like maybe he needs to communicate differently amongst different people, like Ruthann and Walt. Though I, I was going to say, I was going to mention this to you, if that is true for you. Have you ever gotten into a situation in which you uh, you were with two people from different friend groups? Oh, for sure, yeah. In which you are like, then you're like, ah, uh, not too sure how to behave. Yeah, or it's just like I don't. It's hard for me to, because the uh, connecting factor would be me. But it's like, how do I get friend A and friend B to hang out together? Like we're in the same room, but totally different interests or different circles. Um, certainly. Yeah. I I know that feeling. Um, the last thing I really liked about, uh, something that Todd said that I, I didn't even think about, or I didn't come to my mind, but I think it's a really cool, uh, visual element that Todd noticed. It's when Shelly goes to burn the robe, like in the cellar or in the, um, furnace, what do you call that room? Boiler room or whatever, but they like the, the furnace down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's about, I, I went back and found the, uh, the scene. It's about like right at 39 minutes and, uh, it's in the shot. Like it's in the same shot as Shelly, you know, bringing the robe close to the furnace in the top, right. There's a neon sign that evokes, uh, the, the scenes that we saw earlier in Shelly's dream, of like the Las Vegas of Sicily, uh, the brick being like a casino and all the neon there. And I think that's really cool. It's like the devil on her shoulder, you know, just just above her on the upper right-hand side. Yeah, that's a great catch right there. Definitely, yeah, we definitely missed out on that in our, in our own viewing. And then I think Todd just wraps it up by saying he wanted some more Joel. You know, he wished Joel had a, a, a bigger part in this episode. And Charles, we kind of talked about that. I think you pointed that out, that it really is more focused on Ed 
the plot line with Joel is really just sort of like Ed's plot line. Joel is just more reactionary. But yeah, I mean, Ed gets it for this one, but uh, future episodes, I'm sure we're going to see, um, well, I mean, <laughs> we know Joel leaves this season, but there will be more episodes with uh, Joel-centric plot lines. Yeah, definitely not looking forward to this because that means that Joel leaves. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, that was Todd's commentary. Thanks again, Todd, for watching that episode, submitting your thoughts. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. If you if you are re-watching um, Northern Exposure, do tweet about it. Let us know what you think on this rewatch. And uh, thanks again so much. But Charles, next week, we're going to be talking about season six, episode six. Zarya. I think I, I think we talked about this before. Zarya was originally going to be the season five finale because we talked about that a little bit whenever we watched that uh, back in season five. It was uh, Lovers and Mad Men, I believe is the title of the season five finale. Zarya, supposed to be originally, as far as I know, originally slated as the season five finale. I guess they couldn't finish it in time or they decided to uh, prolong it. And here we are, season six, episode six. We're going to be talking about that next week, Charles. So um, I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Todd for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. All right, I bet I could pull up the script. That might be easier. <laughs> How are you getting the script? Um, just type in Northern Exposure Scripts on Google. What the f***? <laughs> what the f***? Why did you tell me this? Oh, tra- they Wait, don't, it's from I- subs like, is it from subs like script? Yeah, it's not oh, the that greatest really sucks. Thing. Yeah, it really sucks. That's probably why I don't use it. Um, that place sucks because it just takes like the closed captioning, I think. Yeah, not even that. It's not formatted correctly. It's like you read it yeah. and everything's out of place. <laughs> All right, give me a second. It's probably the last words in the episode, so let's mm-hmm. find it. They are. I found it. All right. Um...